VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, August the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Come On with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. So if you're in and around town looking for something to do, look for a spectacle to take in, the Downtown Busker Festival kicks off today. It's actually really cool. I mean, sometimes people think of buskers as people with very little talent with a guitar case open or an empty coffee cup looking for a few shekels as they entertain you. Some of the buskers that come to this festival are unbelievable. I've been there in years past to be absolutely dazzled by some of the performers and performances. So that's on the go. DT's SJ starting today. Went down around Kitty Vitty for a stroll yesterday afternoon. And it's just remarkable how quickly they can clean up the banks and the surroundings of Kitty Vitty Lake after the regatta. It leaves behind an enormous mess, no question. So every year, the city of St. John's and whoever else might be involved, they mobilize in short order and they clean it up lickety-split. Good on them. It begs the question as to how long we see some of the litter and the absolute disgraceful state of certain pockets of the province, certain pockets of the city that take forever and a day to get attended to. Now, of course, personal responsibility regarding the litter problem that we have here in the city, adding graffiti or whatever whatever else you want to talk about, but cleaning up Kitty Vitty, pretty sharp. All right, baseball day in NL coming up tomorrow. Bunch of attorneys around the province. You want to fill us in on what to expect in your neck of the woods regarding the baseball NL day and or the attorneys that you're hosting? We can do it. And just one more reminder. Teenager Jada Lee is one of 20 players playing for Canada's national women's team in the World Championships coming up in Thunder Bay this month. Man, she's something else. All right, I've been exchanging notes with the folks at Golf NL. If you go to their website or their Facebook page, they've got a feature called 18 Questions. You know, on the telly on the weekend, you get the old 20 questions. Well, of course, 18 holes, 18 questions. So they've got, I think, eight or nine folks featured already. They're going to try to add one each week, coming up with 20 people by October. So if you're so inclined, go check it out, see who been interviewed and maybe just maybe you'd like to be part of it now next year they plan on bringing in some celebrities and athletes who dabble outside of their key uh, sport and their focus area to play a little bit of golf so that's coming up i told the folks at golf and i'd give it a promo and you can take a look if you're so inclined interestingly at the blue jays game there last weekend saw nick taylor of course, Canadian golfer won the Canadian Open the first time since 1954 when Pat Fletcher, Canadian, last won the national championship. So that was pretty cool. He got a huge round of applause in the building in the Rogers Center. But it was on this date in 1945. Sweet swinging American golfer Byron Nelson won the Canadian Open at Uplands and Thornhill Country Club for a record 11th consecutive PGA Tour victory. He ended up with 18 wins that year. Still a record. 18 wins in one golf season. Like, man, oh, man. Another quick golf note. 1985. American Scott for Plank beat Jim Thorpe in the Western Open playoff. That meant he was the first amateur to win a PGA Tour event since Gene Littler did it once again in 1954. All right, there you go. Now you're up to date. So we talk about sports. I like sports. And I imagine many people listening to the show do indeed enjoy sports themselves or have family members involved in sport. It's good for fitness and recreation and life skills and making friends and being active. Everything about sports can be very, very good. 
But there's been a problem over the years about the safety of our children participating in sports. The federal government has created the Office of the Sport Integrity Commission, and the commissioner is uh, Sarah Eve Peltier. So here's the issue. There's been 193 complaints lodged with the commissioner's office since they began receiving them back in June of 2022. Unfortunately, 66 of those complaints were judged to be admissible. The rest of them have been dismissed and inadmissible. Why? Because they're outside the commission's uh, jurisdiction. So what they need is for all of the sports to sign on to the safe sport declaration so that they're part of the fold. If it was me and I had a child participating in any sport, I would check to make sure that that sport and their umbrella organization has signed on because the complaints need to be adhered to. Some of the organizations that really get a bad rap and a black eye, and justifiably so, Hockey Canada and Gymnastics Canada have both signed on. But if you have a child or someone belong to you involved in a sport, just make sure that their governing body has signed on so that any complaint can be dealt with by the Sport Integrity Commissioner. So there's been a ton of complaints dismissed, but they're looking for alternative areas for complaints to be filed and adjudicated. But here's a little breakdown of what they're dealing with. Of the cases admitted by the commission, one in four dealt with the complaints of psychological maltreatment, 17% dealt with issues of sexual assault. 40% of complaints were lodged against coaches, a further 17% were made against the organization's board members. So again, probably a good idea to ensure that whatever sport your child is involved with, that they are signed on and have signed up for safe sport so that any complaint or concern you have can go all the way to the top for the sport integrity commissioner and we just mentioned some of the psychological maltreatment yesterday we talked about the vacancies for psychologists and there's 36 there has been some moves made to try to retain the psychologists we have and it looks like we've stemmed the exodus of psychologists so there was a fifteen thousand dollar market adjustment a stipend offered and that's helped then we know that the province has put forward some fifty thousand dollars for newfoundland and labrador born and trained healthcare professionals including psychologists twenty five thousand for non-newfoundlanders and labradorians but obviously money's not to be all and end all because the increase is just three three net higher increase in the world of psychology so it's a big deal but here's where it gets even more complicated is that Memorial University's Faculty Association and a clinical psychologist have written to the Premier again, talking about the pending reaccreditation of the psychology program at Mon, which runs at about half the faculty complement required. It may be on the verge of collapse. We don't apparently have enough psychologists, not only for mentorship and what have you, and supervision for the graduates. So can you just imagine a province and amongst every province and territory in the country dealing with a mental health crisis, that we have the possibility for our one university's program to go by the wayside? There has been pleas made since 2019 to hire on one or two additional staff to make sure that the accreditation process uh, continues. It's been accredited, accredited since 2003, but might go away. How can that possibly be? How can the university, out of one side of their mouth, say they think it's important, they work towards maintaining their accreditation, but won't hire the staff to ensure that that's actually the reality of life? Now they go on to say that, you know, the province, that is, establishing a working group. All right, you know, a working group, if that's helpful, good. But the problem there is the fact that this conversation is not as new as today's news story. We've been talking about that on this program for years. The red flags have been flown. 
the alarm bells have been rung. And so a working group at this stage, okay, but it really feels a lot like 11th hour. So whether it be Tanya Leinster, Janine Hubbard, or Lisa Moore, or whoever, we've talked to many. And we've talked with the representative umbrella association too, Mr. Piercy. This is not new. So, yes, a stipend of $15,000, yes, some of the financial incentives, but if we have a mentorship program and accreditation at MUN in jeopardy, in real peril, and this is not hyperbole, this is not sensationalizing a story, this is the reality. So, psychologists in a mental health crisis, we might indeed lose our one university program. Unbelievable. And in the world of, you know, so much digitizing our information, and that's the way of the world. The federal government's actually talking about going <clears throat> as far as they can to improve what they say is service and the speed of service and access to service by digitizing so many opportunities to interact with Canadians, notably like in passports, for instance. It does come with heightened risk, though, doesn't it? I mean, just think about the cyber attack on the Meditech system, which we still know very little about. We know that hundreds of thousands of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have had their personal information compromised. Then there was the most recent fertility services email blast, where some 116 patients were affected, some very publicly going through their journey trying to have a child, some struggling quietly. And now they have been outed because all of the names were right there on the CC list. They weren't blind copied. They were there for all to see. Now there's a class action lawsuit going to be filed in the next couple of weeks by Mr. Buckingham, and we'll see where that goes. But it's just, I think, indicative of how careful the government needs to be with our information. I mean, we talk about our own personal safeguards with our private information, our personal information, whether it be your social insurance number or your banking information, even though there's some nuisance lurking around every corner trying to get it from you. But the government, you got to do better. All right. Little education. Fair questions being asked by all hands regarding infrastructure inside the world of K-12. In the most recent provincial budget, there was $12 million for education outside of infrastructure. The one question being asked is specifically about a high school now to be built in Portugal Cove St. Phillips. It wasn't even on the infrastructure list of any type of priority inside the district. There's emails from Tony Stack saying very, very clearly that this was not on top. He says, the new school was not one of the three priorities we identified, nor has there ever been an infrastructure request for a high school in Portugal Cove St. Phillips. And that was written by an LESD CEO, Tony Stack, sent to the Deputy Minister of Education, Greg O'Leary. Now we know that that school has been announced. Parents at PwC asking questions why, how they came to that determination, looking for some student enrollment forecasts and all the rest including the town of Paradise. Maybe, just maybe, we'll have an opportunity to speak with the mayor, Dan Bobbitt, at some point this morning. So they're talking about in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, and, you know, people will say, well, that's where the premier lives. And whether or not that's the be-all and end-all decision-making, for a lot of people, they would think it is. If 300 students are being bussed out of Portugal Cove, St. Phillips to go to high schools, what about in Paradise? 1,500 kids in Paradise in September will be heading to high schools in Mount Pearl and Conception Bay South. The community is about 21,000 people. More than 20% of the population is under the age of 14. So we should absolutely be relying on verifiable data as we spend public infrastructure monies. So we asked Minister Howell about the numbers to justify Portugal Cove St. Phillips. No one begrudges a community a school. I've got direct family ties to that community myself. 
but we've got to make sure that the numbers guide the decisions. So, Mayor Bobby, you're more than welcome to come on the show, as is any parent of a high school student or one soon to be a high school student, because 1,500 is a lot of young people getting on a bus in paradise, as opposed to any announcement of a high school coming to that community, which is only growing. You know, if there's 21,000 people now, over 20% under the age of 14, five years from now, those numbers are very likely to grow. So anyway, I thought I'd put that forward. All right. You know what? Some of the things that we teach in school. I know some of the conversations feel very adult, but it's the reality of life for some of the students and their families and as they grow into adulthood. And that's things like gender-based violence. How do you even broach it? I'm not sure. But when we talk about respect and self-respect and a safe environment, the right and wrong, the illegal versus legal, the reasonable, compassionate treatment of each other, gender-based violence is a massive problem in this province. Just look at the surge in numbers, whether it be at End Violence NL, Iris Kirby House, and up and down the line. So, of course, additional monies for these support organizations and crisis lines is important. The federal government came forward yesterday with some $700,000 for exactly that. It's part of the $30 million pocket of money that the federal government has set aside for these types of support dollars and crisis hotlines. Okay, good. Maybe we'll get an opportunity to speak with anybody from End Sexual Violence NL and to talk about the numbers they see and hear coming in the door, phone lines or otherwise. There's no real detail of how that money is going to be distributed, yet to be determined. But how do we get down to speaking about how and why so many people find themselves at risk? Yes, it's predominantly women on the receiving end, some men for sure, and there's no emergency shelter for men, I'll throw that in there, but it's predominantly women and children who are on the receiving end of this violence. So how do we even have this conversation? I mean, how does it start? For sure, most of it would have to start at home. Do we add some of this conversation in school? Probably so. I mean, no question. At some point, for instance, in high school, we know full well that there's going to be instances, whether it be in their own homes or amongst their social circle, for these things, these ugly incidents to rear their brutal head. So how do we talk about it? It's good to have money for after the fact where someone finds himself in jeopardy. And it was one of those things that struck me during the pandemic when folks were at home more than usual. For some people, it was just an opportunity to spend more time at home and deal with some home renos and chores and time with family. But for others, it was just persistent, dangerous situations. So good for the feds and the money. But yeah, adding to that, another shooting in St. John's yesterday. No, apparently it wasn't random. They're all known to each other. It's in the area of Bully Street. But that pocket of the city, look, there's obviously lots of dangerous places, not only in the city but around the province. But in that particular sector of the downtown core of this city, it's completely and utterly out of hand. Okay, so it's not random. Does that not mean that we not only deal with root cause issues, but to try to clean it up as soon as possible, like an intense police presence? I don't know what the answers are, but it doesn't seem like we're doing enough to solve what's going on. So, of course, you got this group of criminals. Now, add in mental health concerns, real legitimate issues, add in addictions issues, which obviously is part of this, but it's the numbers of guns. And add to that conversation. You might say, well, but they're all going to shoot themselves up. Okay, well, what about the psychological damage done to the families who are just trying to live their lives? They've got nothing to do with this stuff. They're not part of the so-called gangs. They're not involved in the drug trade. They're not involved in prostitution. They've just got a home that happens to be in now a very dangerous neighborhood. What about them? 
You know, we can talk about whoever's causing the ruckus, whoever's blasting off guns, and it's a lot. It's not just an isolated incident anymore. This is becoming the rule of thumb, more common than not. So if you're living in those neighborhoods, oh, or one of those particular neighborhoods, we can talk about it. But if you're in the area, I had a list here of some of the places that they're asking for you to come forward if you have any information. So whether it be video footage or any info, Bully Street, Dick Square, Allen Square, Balsam Street, Queens Road, Henry Street, Livingstone Street, of course. And that happened yesterday morning between the hours of 7 and 8 a.m. Around 7.45, several shots were heard. All right, how are we doing on the telephone there, David? All right, I'll get another couple in there then. No problem. All right, and housing, certainly part of that conversation. Now, you know, it's just simply not good enough for the prime minister or anybody else to kind of shrug shoulders. Well, housing is a provincial jurisdiction. Technically, absolutely true. But it stands to reason that every level of government has to wrap their mind around the housing issue in this country and do what they can. You know, including the federal government. And not with this gatekeeper stuff and up and down the line. There's no question that the feds play a role. At one point, the federal government played a very active role in affordable housing and rental units, what have you. Now, yes, the private sector should be the ones building. I don't need government, you know, buying up equipment and hiring tradespeople to do exactly that. But they play a guiding principle role. The average price of a detached home in the country is in and around $750,000. Like, how does that happen? You know, I know there's lots of contributing factors as to why that is, but it looks like the newly established tax-free first home savings account has huge uptake. Many of the insurance companies, credit unions, and major banks are offering them. You know, the uh, Royal Bank is all in, first out of the gate. The other major banks say they're actively working towards offering that to their customers or clients. But there's tens of thousands of people who are doing it. $8,000 a year, $40,000 max. Tax-free makes a lot of sense. Now, owning a home is not the number one concern for every, everybody listening. I mean, renters, nothing wrong with renting, but there's a complication in vacancy and the cost of rent, too. So no matter how you slice this business, yes, it must be nice, but imagine, I have $8,000 to contribute to this tax-free account. Doesn't that scream that there's a problem with the mortgage stress test? You know, so many people who could afford to own their own home, which is not just a mortgage payment, there's all kinds of upkeep payments and ongoing expenses associated with owning your own home, which is why there is a required stress test, but it seems a little bit too severe to me. Now, I guess you can throw into that conversation, well, the Bank of Canada is pretty unpredictable with their 10 straight rate hikes, and whether or not there is an end in sight to that, what I would, not foolishness, but a little bit unnecessarily aggressive, if you ask me. All right, uh, very quickly. The young girl, I've told you she's four years old, riding her bike, struck and killed in the Shea Heights yesterday. You know, the investigation hasn't been concluded, obviously, and the young girl obviously is a tragedy for Shea Heights, but I would imagine, I think speaking for all, it's a tragedy for all of us. So, again, I don't know the circumstances surrounding it, but I suppose it's just another opportunity to remind each other that whether it be children or otherwise out there walking or running or riding their bike or on the scooter or skateboard, we've just got to be so careful. There's just so many vehicles in a very congested city not built for it. And my condolences to the family, I suppose. No need to break down what we don't know what we're talking about, exactly the circumstances leading up to it, but just awful. I want to talk about Chinese interference. There's more stories out there. Maybe we'll get to that if you're so inclined to talk about it. We're on Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great Come On With It Friday edition. That means you're in the queue to join us live on the air. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the program. Well, I meant to mention this off the top, and it's been noticed by many. Going to the gas station to fill up just to find out they have no regular unleaded gasoline. Apparently at Costco yesterday, they had no fuel, period. So let us know what you're seeing out there, and maybe, just maybe, someone working in the industry can tell us what is actually going on here. So, yeah, no gas? What? Talk about the price. And then, you know, we talk about emergency rooms and healthcare all the time. Justifiably so. Whether some emergency rooms have gone to urgent care facilities and emergency rooms are closing or it's unpredictable whether or not they'll be open, it's a concern everywhere in the province, including in Central. Let's go to line number three. Begin the show this morning with the PC member for exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey. And good morning, Pleeman. You're on the air. Good morning. Morning to you. Uh, Patty, first of all, certainly I would uh, certainly like to congratulate the... uh, Leslie Oak School of Dance uh, on their performance in New, in New York this weekend. They won the uh, Dance the World event, you know, and the, these dancers are from the central area. And it just shows the talent that we have here, you know, and uh, what they can do when they're put on a world stage. So uh, congratulations to them. 100%. What's the name of the school again, I'm sorry? Leslie Oak School of Dance. Bravo. So what kind of competition was this? Did you say it was a world championship? It, it was called the uh, Dance the World event. Wow. Uh, there was competition there from all over, certainly. Fantastic. Was, but uh, Patty, my main call this morning again, of course, is is the healthcare in Central Newfoundland or or lack of, I guess. You know, I'm still hearing of uh, closures and diversions of of emergency units. You know, here in Central, still forcing residents to drive long distances for healthcare and treatment. You know, uh, th- you know this is causing an overwhelming stress certainly on the uh, on our regional hospital right here in uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, and the workloads on the doctors and staff. Increased wait times again, uh, you know, at the emergency unit. I'm hearing now, Patty, is up uh, up to around 15 hours just to see a doctor, and that's that's if you see one. I'm also hearing, you know, that there's large numbers of patients leave without seeing a doctor after waiting all the, all those uh, times. You know, so it's, you know, residents are frustrated, Patty. Doctors are frustrated, and uh, most people around here now, Patty, feel defeated. They don't know where to go anymore. You know, they have the, uh, you know, they try the health hub. Which which is swamped, you know, and, and there's barely enough staff now to keep keep that afloat. And those are that, that's words there, Patty, from uh, one of the uh, physicians that made a post there this week that I saw on, on one of the posts that you know they're really frustrated as well. And uh, you know we're we're getting to the point at at the Grand Falls Windsor Hospital there that uh, you know uh, you know we're getting to the point of being being uh, you know destabilized, you know, and that, that that's serious. That's serious business. You know, there's no success with the 811 lines. Uh, the emergency units, you know, uh, are in disastrous positions. Patty, it just seems like uh, the promises, plans, and annou- announcements that government are doing are just not working at this point. It's hard to know what's going to work. You know, I sit here and I don't have any skin in the game, regardless of the political stripe of any of the callers or listeners. You know, but solutions seem to be extremely hard to come by. We're finding out very quickly that money is only a small part of it. We're spending about $4 billion a year on health care. There's been all kinds of incentive pots of money to lure, recruit, retain health care professionals, and obviously not working the way it was intended to. You know, if you had to ask me 10 years ago what would make the uh, big difference in health care, I might have said money. Now I think, no, that's just not where we start. And I don't know where we do, but we have a global competition and we have a very serious competition inside the walls of our own, the borders of our own country. So when we talk about solutions, if you're thinking outside the so-called proverbial box, what should we be talking about? 
Well, I mean, so we should have started this years ago, Patty, of course, and, you know, uh, we should have been into the universities to train their own, of course, and, and give them incentives when they come out. That way we may, we may have averted some of this uh, situation right now. But uh, family care teams, Patty, you know, is, is one of the initiatives that government did put in. And uh, they, uh, they they started this last fall to uh, have a family care team announced for uh, Grand Falls, Windsor area, you know, Bishop Saul's Grand Falls, Windsor. That family care team is not has not been implemented yet, you know, and, uh, you know, we're well into almost another year. And uh, I'm hearing that doctors uh, would w- would like to have the family care teams implemented. And, uh, you know, certainly certainly it's it's a help to it's a help to any uh, in any part of the system, you know, when we can inc- increase the services somehow. So family care teams would work. Um, you know, another solution right now. Uh, here in Bishop Saul's alone, Patty, uh, I, uh, we lost our doctor certainly uh, over a year ago now, and uh, we have a physician who's interested, of course, in uh, uh, setting up a practice here in Bishop's Falls. Uh, he did get some pushback, I think, from from the uh, from the healthcare uh, the the health authority at at one point, uh, but. You know, uh, we have 3,000 people, 3,000 residents alone just here in Bishop Falls. You know, with no, with no family doctor right now. They're using the, using the uh, emergency units in Grand Falls, Windsor. Maybe you know, if uh, he, he's interested in setting up a little clinic, maybe uh, the health authority could uh, could work more with the incentives and supports uh, to get him uh, set up here in uh, in Bishop Falls, alleviate some of the uh, stress that's that's up on the uh, Grand Falls, Windsor area. You know, especially at the regional hospital. And uh, that would move him in there to, uh, you know, see some of the patients, uh, do some minor surgeries, and uh, instead of roadblocks, you know, give them incentives. Primary care teams, collaborative care clinics is absolutely going to be a key feature. The province plans on having 35 of those collaborative care clinics in the future. But the trick there is ensuring that there's new healthcare professionals added to the mix, not just moving a doctor or a nurse or a nurse practitioner from here to there. You know, I mean, I know it feels good and know it's a new clinic in town and that's going to be hopefully helpful, but we need new pros in. I would imagine some emergency rooms, maybe not at major hubs like in Grand Falls, Windsor, emergency rooms moving off to what they're calling urgent care clinics like they've done in Whitburn, but that comes with complications and unpredictable circumstances as well. So I don't know where the solutions lie, but I do know that right across the country, we have seen enormous competition, and that is just not healthy for Canada to be in bidding wars. With all the money we spend on healthcare and all the needs in the system, if it simply comes down to which province has the most money, then that is just backwards, period. The system doesn't work the way it's intended, hasn't been dealt with on a human resources front for decades, and now push has arrived at shove squarely. Uh, anything else, Plame, before we say goodbye this morning? No, Patty, I'd just like for government to uh, certainly look, sit down and look at those those situations. Here in, here in Grand Falls, Windsor, here in Central Newfoundland, Patty, it's gone to dire straits. Uh, we, we are concerned about our emergency units here in, here in Central, and uh, we certainly need some help. Appreciate the time, Pleeman. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Pleeman Forsey, the PC member for exploits. Well, I mentioned tomorrow is baseball day. Yeah? Shop, cook, dine, celebrate Canadian. It's Food Day Canada as well, coming up tomorrow here across the country. Join us on line number two is our buddy, Chef Rory McPherson. Good morning, Chef. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing? That's kind. How about you? Good, good. I wanted to ask you just 
first, I just wanted to, uh, I meant to do this a while ago, was send out a big congratulations to Newfoundland Rock Rugby. We, they attended the Atlantic competition in uh, the end of June, and uh, all the teams did quite well. I will mention the U15 team who won gold, my son's on, but I just wanted to give a big shout out to the coaches and the volunteers who made that happen. So Baz Crosby, Dean Blanks, Michael Doyle, and, uh, you know, just the amount of time and effort they put into it to showcase these group, great group of kids, I got to say, it was outstanding. Yeah, great stuff. Of course, I've been at some of those Atlantics with young Jack Daly, and uh, I have been ta- I gave him the shout-out here on the show because I do follow the sport, as you know, and I don't think Dean yeah. Blanks was able to go to the championships, and Baz really picked up a lot of the slack. Michael Doyle, who's <laughs> he's a real uh, <laughs> feature at the rugby club. Michael's a old friend yeah. of mine, so he won't take offense to that. So Luke's playing rugby. Yes, he is, yeah. So, you know, 14 years old, six foot, buck 90. He's a solid brick for sure. What position is he playing? Uh, hooker. Oh, really good for him. We've actually yeah. had young hookers from this province play for the country. Uh, Michael McCarthy, yeah. young Mick McCarthy played hooker for the under 21s. Oh, excellent. That's great. Terrific. Let's talk a little Food Day Canada. Food Day Canada, again, national celebration. You know, the whole purpose of Food Day Canada is to shine a light on Canadian cuisine. You know, over 300 restaurants across the country. And this year at the Hilton Garden Inn at the Cannery and Kitchen and Social, we're joining the mix. Um, you know, uh, got some great partnerships going with uh, Bill Gregory from Haircut Farms. I'm using his beautiful beef brisket, and I'm using lots of great produce from the organic farm, Mike Rabinovitz down in uh, Porto Cove. Uh, you know, starts at 5 o'clock tomorrow evening. <clears throat> it's a it's a six-course menu, but the menu is priced out uh, uh, individually as well. So if people just want to try one dish, they might want to have the whole dining experience. Uh, come on down to the cannery kitchen and social. Uh, so the menu starts, you know, we got fresh, everyone who comes in will get fresh bread and rolls of molasses butter. Then we got uh, one starter of Mare Machine Bay oysters with a beautiful vinegar shallot sauce. And then we have organic farm greens and herb salad with whipped beet puree and feta cheese. The entree is uh, uh, Haricot Farms beef bourguignon with maple roasted root vegetables, garlic potato puree, and then a lovely herb uh, and uh, berry scone shortcake. Uh, All-inclusive will be $80, but again, each item is priced to it individually, so if someone wanted to just pop down and have a salad or just have the beef, they're more than welcome to attend as well. And some of this in honor of Anita Stewart, who was the founder of Food Day Canada this go-around this year. I don't know about the number of Michelin restaurants and what have you, but I think Canada has a very solid reputation in the culinary world. I know you and many of your other uh, Canadians have been to James Baird uh, down in the States and, you know, featured inside of their programs and brought home some of their, I guess, uh, tips and professionalism and recommendations, but I think Canada does very well. Certainly this province does very well in the culinary scene. So the details, the where, the when, one more time, Chef, before I have to take a break. So the our dinner actually is uh, at the Hilton Garden Inn in the Cannery Kitchen and Social. Starts at 5 p.m. tomorrow. Uh, you can phone the Hilton Garden Inn to make a reservation, or you can go on the app Open Table, find the Cannery Kitchen in St. John's, and you can make your own reservation right online. Good to have you on, Chef. Say hello to look for me. I will, buddy. Thanks a lot, Patty. All the best, Chef. Bye-bye. That's right. Chef Rory McPherson, Food Day Canada tomorrow. Let's take a break. Let me come back. Peter Doors there. He's from the Atlantic Salmon Federation. We've talked about the last week, there was upwards of 70 rivers closed in the province. The warm water or the amount of water. People are talking about salmon die-offs. been seen by some. We'll talk about that. And apparently in White Bay just the other day, there was a Pacific pink salmon caught. So there's lots to talk about with Peter right after this. Don't go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Peter Dorr from the Atlantic Salmon Federation. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, sir. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Sunshine, and it's beautiful over here in uh, Rocky Harbor. Glad to hear it. Nice in town as well. And it's been really nice, but it's also been really hot. In the month of July, unseasonably warm for many parts of the province. It's not uncommon to see warm water, 20, 22, 23 degrees. But what was uncommon in July in particular was just how many days in a row we saw those temperatures. What did it mean for the salmon rivers? And what are we seeing about the potential for salmon die-off? Well, when it's that warm for that long, as many people in the province know, the water heats up and doesn't get a chance to cool down and um, at night. So the day sort of just kind of bakes the water and brings the temperatures up, which directly impacts the salmon. So the salmon need cold water habitat in order to uh, in order to sort of be abundant and, and be healthy. And uh, when the water heats up like that, it impacts their ability to travel upstream, and um, they can't sort of dispel the lactic acid and that can result in, in large die-offs or that can result in some, some salmon dying in the river. Yeah, I mean, you, you see the salmon in there, but they're simply not moving, which is a problem. Now, I don't know how many die-offs we've seen or what people are reporting to you, but according to Craig Purchase, who is a f- uh, professor of fish biology at Money, says these prolonged warm waters, it stands to reason we'd see a, d- a die-off. What are your anglers, your members telling you? So I haven't heard a lot of stories of die-offs. What I've heard more about from anglers on the river has been fish just not showing up, whether that's there sitting out in the ocean waiting for the water to cool down to come in or maybe early in the season when the rain came, they all head upstream early. But um, there has been some reports of die-offs, but I've heard a lot more anglers complain about the fact that there's just not a lot of fish around this year, and that could be for a number of reasons. A number of reasons, and again, not new. I wonder, is the problem worsening? Because when the rivers that are counted, and I think there's maybe 17 or 18 on the island and a few in Labrador that are counted formally each year, uh, when does that happen, and what do we read into the numbers? Because they're really quite woeful. I mean, look at places like Con River, a fraction of historic returns. Well, I think each river has its own story to tell, really. You know, the Con River, uh, the aquaculture issue down there is impacting that river. And um, all the way up the West Coast, you know, each river has its own its own tale to tell. Generally speaking, Atlantic salmon returns over the past 10 to 15 years have, have stabilized. They're not declining the way that they were prior to that. But um, the fish ladders go in. This year, for example, there was a, a big rain, a lot of moisture at the beginning of the season, which could have resulted in fish passing some of the fish ladders without being counted but generally speaking i believe the fish ladder season is mid to late june until early september um and there's a lot of different reasons why those fish couldn't be returning or aren't returning in the in the historical numbers and generally speaking i think what's important to acknowledge is that on a year-to-year basis there's always a fluctuation in the amount of fish that return to each river Sure, and then you mean you add in things like aquaculture, which is a complication for certain rivers, no question. But then I heard a story, Peter. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. There was a Pacific white, a Pacific pink salmon caught out in White Bay. They've been counted in a bunch of rivers uh, in Norway and in other parts of Scandinavia, in the UK. What are we seeing here, and what's the problem there? Because we know the potential to mate between a, a farm fish and a wild salmon is a problem, even though Greeks say they can't reproduce uh, the one percent 
Bay. But what are we hearing about Pacific pink salmon in our waters? Well, so I was actually the one that was uh, contacted with those pictures, and oh. I sent them on to the leadership <laughs> over at ASF. And, um, you know, pink salmon are uh, every other year spawners, so they return in, in big numbers to, to rivers, and they can compete for spawning habitat. They're known to, to eat other species of salmon eggs. And generally speaking, they're not native to those rivers, so it's, it's hard to predict exactly the impact that they'll have. But we know that it's not a good thing, and we don't want to see other species of salmon returning to these rivers in an already fragile ecosystem that we're trying to restore for wild Atlantic salmon. And um, the pink salmon aren't necessarily a product of aquaculture. It's an introduction from what I understand, and I'm certainly no expert on the topic, but from what I understand, they were introduced in Russia a certain amount of years ago, and they've begun to work their way down into the European rivers as well as the northwest coast or the northeast coast of, of the Atlantic region. The problem or the extent of the problem is not actually firmly known, but they have been labeled an invasive species. So there's got to be something to it and how we deal with it. I don't know how you keep a, a migratory fish out of a river in this province <laughs> is anybody's best guess as to what that really means. Uh, Peter, what else would you like to tell us this morning about this year's salmon season, what we should be thinking about and looking forward to? Well, I mean, I think that it can only get better at this point. You, you know, if the Marguerite River, for example, like on a yearly basis, the rivers change. The runs are different. Forever, the Marguerite River was in Cape Breton was a was a fall run, and people are reporting this year that salmon returned to that river in June and July. So there's a there's a likelihood or a possibility that fish are just sort of stacked up out in the ocean, waiting to return up into the rivers around here a little bit later this year. And I think that people should remain optimistic and. Remember that on a year-to-year basis, sometimes there's more fish to return, sometimes there's less fish that return, but we've really got to measure these things on large trends over a certain amount of years rather than on a yearly basis, I think, uh, not getting caught up in the moment and remembering that things are things are looking up and, and Atlantic salmon are in a better position now than they have been in a long time. And we've really got to think about the how much we don't know about the oceans and the health of the oceans, whether it be uh, acidity levels and uh, phytoplankton and other parts of the contributing part of the food cycle. That's just there's some big questions to be asked. It's amazing after all these centuries how little we know about the ocean. Uh, good to have you on, Peter. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, to, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Stay in touch. Thanks, Peter. All right, Peter Dore with the Atlantic Salmon Federation. All right, uh, will I take another call here, Dave, before we get to the break? Uh, you want me to go to the four? Done. Let's go to line number four. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. You're in great form again this morning. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. I was going to say that uh, the uh, uh, growing season for you remember in June it was so cold and, and foggy and uh, so on, low temperatures, right? Growing season started uh, really slowly, but I think that this July, with the heat and the rain, I think this is this is the best growing season I've seen in in 24 years out of. That the stuff just took off. We we, we had a meal yesterday of early potatoes, early carrot. Uh, with, with a moose roast. Now, what, what do you think of that? I think it's delicious, and I'm jealous. Uh, we're having a pretty good growing season, our very small-scale backyard potted uh, setup. But, I mean, last year was banner season, which led to a variety of things, like all those maple seedlings and stuff that kind of got me drove. Okay. But it looks like things are gone gangbusters now. And certainly, anybody involved on the commercial scale, they needed it badly because June was quite worrisome. Yeah, yeah. Patty, I listened to a report from um, Southeast Asia, the, the Pacific there. 
Have you, what, what's the highest win you can recall uh, uh, going through in, in your lifetime? Oh, I don't really know. I mean, sustained gusts out in the wreck house, maybe in the 150s. 150 kilometers. Yeah, well, I'm not, not talking post-tropical storm or hurricanes or what have yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. So probably around in miles, probably 90 to 100 uh, miles an hour. I suppose, and around there. Yeah, I've, 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 I've been through that with, uh, uh, I guess, that hurricane way back. Uh, I, Ivan, uh, what was that? Igor. Igor, yes, yes. Well, they had the winds over there. I, I had to listen to it twice, 200 kilometers per hour, 190 in the other place. This is Japan and China. And I can't imagine, that's 150 miles an hour, judging by what, a, uh, 90 to 100. How the hell does anything stay stay up, uh, roofs or anything in, in, in wind like that? It's, it's, it's unimaginable. Add to it some of the heat we're seeing in the Persian Gulf Airport in Iran. There one day last week, it was 152.2 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> Unbelievable. 66.7 Celsius. I mean, can you just imagine? Anyway, the winds are blowing over there. Hopefully, we don't see that kind of so, wind here because given the coastal population, devastating. So, so what I'm saying is with the ocean temperatures, which, of course, is going to add to the, the rain and the atmosphere and, and the wind. Sure. This is, this is personal safety. This is not just destruction of property anymore. Uh, uh, we had a taste of it in, 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 in Port of Basque, certainly. Uh, this, this, is, this is a direct threat to, uh, to, to human beings, and, and, and it's not slowing down. Every year, of course, it's getting worse, as you see with the temperatures and the amount of rainfall. So I don't know if people... Uh, 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 realize that they can be sitting down one day and perfectly uh, okay, and 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 two days later they can they can have their roof. Uh, it's uh, I, it seems like we're not relating it to to that aspect of our lives, mainly to to the other things. But anyway, I don't, I don't know if you want to say anything there or not. Well, I mean. It- Generally speaking, on a variety of fronts, until it strikes home, it might be not something you give much attention or credence to. I mean, it's a busy world when folks got their own very tailor-made concerns in their life. So some of the big subjects, the big headlines, unless it batters your community, might not be front of mind, which I think is standard. Not to say it's right, not to say justifying any of that, but I think that's just how things work by and large. That's how our species uh, uh, operates. Okay, I, 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 I've, I've been witness to that for quite a while. Uh, I'd like to qu- quickly comment on two things on, on uh, the, the little debate between um, Tom and uh, the, the member Small, I think his name is. He made reference to Tom building his political uh, career, which may or may not be so with his uh, comments on radio. Tom has done two things that uh, uh, certainly wouldn't help a political career. He's pointed out what's happening with with climate change, the danger to us, and what we have to sacrifice, importantly, as human beings to help this problem. And he's also pointed out that uh, the greed that uh, is in our society with unions and other groups and that wanting the top dollar and so on, and... uh, we can no longer sustain that. So if Tom wants to build a political career, if that's all his objective is, his message is certainly not one of convenience. It's one of uh, people they don't want to hear. So I thought there was a bit of a shot. And when Small said something about we'll fight climate change with technology, I had to chuckle a bit. Uh, we know about uh, carbon sequestration and so on. Uh, 
these these if we got to rely on uh, 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 technology to save us from uh, and <laughs> from climate change, I think I think we're in trouble. Well, it plays a role, but I mean it's, it, it plays it, a role. Yes, sure. The know, unfortunate I, part of it is so climate change, and for some people, the conversation begins and ends with carbon tax. For some, yeah. it begins and ends with carbon capture. When in fact, it's got to be every single thing, whether it be inside yes. commercial and industry and personal responsibility and government action. I mean, it's just such a big conversation that reductive thinking takes over, right? Carbon tax yeah. bank, it's over. Can't talk about it anymore. The opposition parties uh, want want to tell us things that have no pain so they can get back in, of course. So that's I guess that's natural. But anyway, I think Tom is really being uh, uh, telling it as it is. Sometimes I know he loses his audience with that ocean circulation thing he had on the other day. I understood because I heard it the day before. Yeah, I wasn't around. I don't know about the to and fro between the two men. I, I just don't know. But That was that was a bit deep uh, on, on, on issue study, the thing. Anyway, the last thing I want to comment Quickly. on is is um, on Trump uh, and what happened to him, this arraignment and so on, charges. I was disappointed in two things. One, that that they didn't bring the sedition charge uh, where he was trying to overthrow the government, which to me was obvious, but I guess they felt they would have had trouble proving it. And the second thing, and Colin would be a good one to answer this, when you watch a group uh, uh, killing people and 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 striking them and uh, breaking into a building and you don't intervene. Is there some law that you 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 have to? Uh, uh, you can't just willfully stand by and let that happen. You have to t- try to do something. Do you know anything about that? Well, I think that's in the umbrella of the conspiracy charge. Oh, maybe, maybe. I would think so, because conspiracy isn't just the initial conversation. It's the entirety of the conspiracy, which leads up to oh, the end yeah. result. So, yeah, yeah. And I don't think we'll talk about uh, those issues on the program, because I've got a lot more to worry about inside the borders of the country. But, of course, international implications do indeed bleed into the psyche, bleed into the discourse, and have direct implications here, whether it be in Ukraine or the United States or elsewhere. But he's, those charges seem to be quite serious. We'll see what the courts bring forward. But of course, that's a conversation very much akin to climate change. It begins and ends with deflection and distraction of what aboutism is. <laughs> I don't yeah. have the brain power. Well, uh, if it's contained in that, then, then, then I'm okay with that because th- th- that seems to me the, one of the worst things that he did. He said he told them to march peacefully, which of course it was a throwaway statement down there. But then he watched them as people told him, his own people said, look, you got to stop this. And when he wanted to stop it, after about two and a half hours, he did. So he could have done that at, at the beginning, you know. But anyway, if that's lumped in conspiracy, that's, that's fine then. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not speaking as an expert. I don't know what Jack Smith has off his uh, legal sleeve, but I assume in the world of conspiracy, that's how that works, because conspiracy will actually have an outcome. Yeah. It, it's not just the plotting or planning of anything, regardless of who's charged with whatever type of conspiracy, to what end. It includes the act. Um, I appreciate the time, Charlie. Thanks for this. Okay, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's get a break in. Uh, when we come back, we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Back to the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Happy Friday to you, Pat. Happy, <laughs> Happy Friday to you as well. Okay. No, I just want to talk about the regatta a little bit. And, um, you know, I know it's all about the rowers and everything like that. Uh, you know, the time they put into everything and stuff like that. But I'm a vendor down there. And, uh, well, my mother-in-law started it uh, 30 years ago, going down there. And... Um, I don't think the vendors get enough uh, credit for what they do, too. 
the amount of hours that they have to put into for gearing up for this. You know, it's 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 always a big thing. And yes, you know, we're always looking to make a little bit of money, but um, for us, where we're at, you know, um, for the vending that we do, it was for the kids. It's called Happy Kids, and um, the kids always win a prize. So one of our our booths, you know, the kids always win a prize. It doesn't matter what we do, and we never raised our prices this year. Again, like a lot of the vendors did, everybody's raising prices. We did not do that. And um, but in saying that, I'm just saying the vendors don't get enough credit either, because there's ton of work that we do months months before it happens, and we put a lot of money into it, and we don't know if it's a go or no go. Well, I mean, I've been involved, so I know full well what goes into it, and good on you. So just very quickly, what kind of games do you hold so that everyone wins a prize? Like, is it a fish pond, or what do you do? No, it's, it's um, we have a couple clown heads. It's called Happy Kids. Okay. And it's, the kids come up, and they'll puck, pick a puck off there. We got you know, all sorts of different Sesame Street, Peppa Pig, and all this stuff. And they come up, and they'll... You know, but they always win, and we're always engaged with the kids. You know, you know, we're always giving them big hoots and everything like that when they pick their prize, and they always win every time. Good, and I'm glad it was a uh, a good year for you, even though you didn't raise your prices. So you did well. Oh man, this was this was the best year I've seen in ten years. Terrific. Okay, we didn't stop from like well, we were there at you know five thirty. And then when, once we got to go, we set up and everything like that. And then we didn't stop until 8 o'clock that night. It was just an absolute amazing. I've never seen it like this before. And so just so I understand, so Happy Kids is simply the name you put to your, uh, your booth. So it's a yes. for-profit operation. Yes. Okay. Just so I know what we're talking about, because Happy Kids could have been anything. could have been a charity that I'm not aware of. So well, I'm glad you had a charity work. I'm sorry? We do do charity work oh, do at other at other events and stuff like that. Okay. So everything we do, we do with a lot of Janeway stuff. So when we go to the Janeway, you know, we'll we'll open up at the Orange Store or something like that. And when they have a Janeway thing going, we'll open up, and everything we do for the Janeway goes all to the Janeway. I'm glad to hear it. Look, uh, for whether it be charities, not for profits, or vendors like yourself. There's nothing quite like the captive audience at the regatta. Tens of thousands of people will make their way through and around the banks of Kitty Vitti over the course of the day, and it looked like the crowds were big, and apparently the money was pretty solid. Folks that are friends of mine in the not-for-profit and charity world, they're really quite pleased. I'm glad you had a great year with Happy Kids down there because, you know, and you say it's all about the rowing. As I wrote five years ago, and I'm a fan of the regatta, and I'm a fan of the rowing. I don't even know if it gets as much focus as it's probably do. It's a bit more of a garden party than it is a rowing competition for many people, but I'm glad you did well, and hopefully you'll have the same successes in the future, and I'm glad to hear you're doing charity work with the likes of the Janeway and others, so bravo on the work and the success and the charity work. Uh, Rob, anything else you want to say this morning? Yeah, no, I just wanted to say, you know, it should be noted more, like on the news and stuff like that, to, you know, you know what, NTV's down there, you know, VOCM's down there, all the news, you know, CBC and all that stuff. But they don't come around and talk to anybody. They take a few pictures here and there, and you get a few pictures on the news and stuff like that. But don't, don't, they don't come down and talk to anybody and, and see the work that's involved. 
you know. Um, I just think there should be more sent out to the vendors too. You know, just, just a little bit more kudos to the vendors. Well, here's your kudo from me this morning, Rob. And uh, it's been a long time since I covered the races directly, well over a decade now, because uh, I haven't done it as part of the VOCM team. I even think we should call all the races, to be honest with you, and talk about the vendors and everything else going on Pond side. Good to have you on the show, Rob. Late for the news, but appreciate your time. Okay, thanks a lot, Patty. You're welcome, buddy. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, time for the news. We talked about psychology issues, and it's not just at the uh, health services itself. It's not just a uh, university-accredited program issue. It has ripple effects across, whether it be the university com- community and otherwise. We've been talking about the lack of a high school coming to the town of Paradise. We can get that in, and all kinds of stuff coming up right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the Mayor of Paradise. That's Dan Bobbitt. Mayor Bobbitt, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so I'd like to talk about education, not only infrastructure, but investment in the system. But this go-around, a new high school proposed for Portugal Cove St. Phillips. No real data to back it up. Give us the pitch for Paradise and what your experience in your community with the numbers of people being bussed out to other communities. Yep, thank you, uh, Patty. Uh, you know, again, statistics, and like you said, there's no real basis or statistical information on why Portugal St. Phillips uh, should get the high school, even though the one thing they said was 300 children are being bused to St. John's. Well, here's the numbers for Paradise. 1,500 students are getting bused outside of Paradise. And, you know, our population has been growing. we got the youngest average age population out of 23,000 people. Uh, 6,000 of those citizens are under the age of 19, and 20% of our entire population is under the age of 14. Uh, you know, it, it just, there, here's your stats for you, right? I mean, this, this is what it comes down to. So we've been asked, the Premier like to justify why paradise you know was skipped over and if you go back and look at uh, the well the former english school district the, the recommendation was paradise to get high school first based on the statistical information uh, you know since the interview i did yesterday morning uh, one of the uh, former committee members of the uh, English school district reached out to me and he said Portugal St. Phillips was never on that list, right? You know, as being the top. It was top three and Paradise was the top one. So we're shaking our heads and wondering, you know, obviously, how are you making decisions uh, to spend $35 million approximately uh, for a brand new high school and not put it in Paradise? These are the questions we've been asked, and we've reached out to the Premier uh, to, uh, to, to have a meeting. Well, we know Portugal St. Phillips is growing, but it's absolutely undeniable that the community of Paradise is growing. CBS is growing. If the population is in and around 21,000 and over 20% are under the age of 14, that really does speak to the volume of uh, current and uh, pending high school students. So hopefully you do get your meeting with the Premier. But like we had Minister of Education, uh, Crystal Lynn Howell, on the show. She was very new to the portfolio. But regardless, inside her department, they've got to have numbers to back this up. And if, Terry, if Tony Stack didn't think it was a priority, and he said exactly that in an email to the Deputy uh, Minister of Education, I think Greg O'Leary is that gentleman's name. Absolutely. You know, so 
how do you approach that conversation? And where does Paradise now line up in the hierarchy? If it was once number one and is no longer number one, does that mean in next year's budget is Paradise's turn, or what do we know? Yeah, well, what we're asking is what statistical information are you using? If you're not using the former English school district's information or the population growth, again, you know, we're the fastest-growing municipality in Atlantic Canada still for the past, like, 12, 13 years, and our numbers speak for themselves. And, you know, the Stats Canada data is there. If you, I mean, if you're going to use data, that's what you should be using. Uh, we've got four elementary schools. Uh, we've got an intermediate school, and we're thankful for that as well. Uh, but, you know, our parents are out there asking us. We're saying, you know, but high school for paradise. And we're saying to them, that's a provincial jurisdiction. And, you know, we, we were promised, like you said, back in 2015, that we were going to we're going to get a high school uh and i think in the 2016 budget does the former ball government that uh, they basically backed down on that one but again according to uh, you know the, the english school district um we should have gotten a high school so i don't know what's going on and we're asking the question on behalf of our residents and we're asking residents to come together and speak out and we're louder together and we need to be talking about this the percentage of the population of your community under the age of 14 what does that mean for the lower grade schools? Are they over capacity? Are they so-called bursting at the seams? What's happening there? Well, they're full, Patty. I mean, those schools are like four elementary schools feeding into, well, some of the intermediate schools, intermediate students, I guess, go to other communities still. They don't all, out of those four uh, elementary schools, some of only half of them go to the intermediate school in Paradise. But uh, again, you know, our numbers speak for themselves. The growing population continues to be growing, uh, and it just we, we want we want answers and statistical information. You know, based on statistical information alone, you know, we should have gotten high school in paradise. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. It's hard to deny it. The numbers are the numbers. And when we make decisions, especially on infrastructure spend, it's got to be based on data. It's got to be based on real student forecast numbers. It's not about, you know, who knows who or who knows what or someone has the inside track because that's just not how public infrastructure money should be handled regardless. No matter if it's the contract or location of a building, it's just not how things should be done. So you've been told you're getting a meeting or we're still not sure? Uh, we're, we're having a meeting with... Uh well, we, they reached, got back to us, and uh, I asked for a meeting with the Premier, but um, they've come back and said we'll meet with uh, Minister Howell first. So, Let us know how that meeting goes when you get a chance, Mayor Bobbitt. I will, Patty. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dan Bobbitt. He's the Mayor of Town of Paradise. Let's go to line number seven. Frank, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Great stuff. Patty, I'm phoning... Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. He ran into a little bit of a, uh, well, a hard time. His aunt died about two months ago. <clears throat> and then his mother died just last month. You know, God love him. So he's having a bit of difficulty with that. He had his mother's body cremated. And after the, the cremation, he asked, uh, he got his he got the urn, and he asked where the metal was because she apparently had a uh, substantial amount of dental work done, a lot of gold work. And the uh, funeral home said, we don't return the metal. Now, personally, I, I can understand some bodies might have a lot of metal hips and joints, and but when it comes to gold, gold is very, very expensive. It's about $2,000 an ounce, and he was saying this lady had quite the amount there. So I'm just wondering, do you know anything about 
What goes on in funeral homes when it comes to returning all body parts? Well, I don't have a whole lot of experience, thankfully, but I do recall when being involved in my father's funeral planning is that we were told anything that you want, you should keep now. And I didn't think, you know, of course, you're in that state of distraught and sadness and grief that I didn't even think about it a whole lot. So whether it be a watch or a ring or whatever, we gave it some thought and just very basically thought through, but didn't ask any questions about, what do you mean? Uh, so do you keep things or what's the process? I didn't even ask the question because, as I said, I was, wasn't really all there mentally. But I assume that's the way it goes. Whatever you want to keep, you have to keep prior to cremation as opposed to recover after because lots of things will survive as you rightfully point out gold teeth and i got a couple of pins in my body they're going to survive a cremation when it ever comes to that to me for me so i suppose that's the advice but they should be up front here it's like everything else you can't leave it till after the fact because you're dealing with very fragile people who are just dealing with the death of a loved one when they're planning a funeral cremation or otherwise so that should be part of the conversation up front here's how it works here's the rules here's what you need to know but if you don't know it, then chasing it after the fact is really unfortunate because it's all bad enough when you lose a loved one. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I totally understand. And that's a really good point. Everything should be brought forward. When he, when he did ask, ask the person, he said, what about the, uh, the medal? And they looked him in the eye and, you know, and, and he told me he was kind of shocked at the way he said, uh, we just, you know, we, we, we don't return it. So I guess the question is, what happens to it? Where does it go? Some of that metal is quite expensive. I know, you know, palladium, gold. Very expensive work. So just just a question thrown out there and uh, thought I'd see if I can get an answer from you, Patty. Well, I wish I had an answer, I, but I, I'm just guessing or opining that's how it works. And, you know, someone might say, well, I mean, what kind of real value is there in one person's gold teeth? Well, if it happens over the course of an entire year and there's a bunch of uh, your... The people that you cremate have any of these gold fittings, whether it be in your mouth or otherwise, it can add up. So I assume they just keep it. I do know someone in the funeral business, uh, and I can ask them directly, like what their policies are, how the conversations work, whether or not they come on the show or simply just have a conversation with me off air. I've never even given this any thought in the uh, prior, Frank, but I'm going to now because it's sort of an interesting set of circumstances. Okay, that's that's great, uh, Patty. I really appreciate it. And also, same with me. Not something I would think about on a daily basis, but I figured if anybody would know, you'd be the one. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, Frank. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, like everything else, you know, especially when you're dealing with people who are grieving. You know, not every moving part comes to mind. You simply want to get the arrangements done. You want to get back to your family. you got to get out of that office because it's all bad enough. Look, there's good people working in the industry. Of course there are. But when you've got folks who really don't think their way through every single question that might be part of their concern, just tell them what's happening. You know, I'll give it a document. Please read this over. If you have any questions, please ask. Because when you get home and you kind of have to decompress a little bit, maybe you can just say, oh, okay, we really should consider this. Oh, make sure we take off Dad's gold chain. Oh, make sure this happens. You know, because you're not really thinking very clearly. You just want to get through it. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we talked about one of the implications of, you know, the issues regarding recruiting, retaining psychologists, some of the issues with the mentorship program, accreditation program at MUN. It has far-reaching effects, including at the Student Wellness and Counseling Center at Memorial University. Speak with John Harris. He's the Director of External Affairs. Paul Toomey's there to talk about some of the good work they're doing at the Eating Disorder Foundation. And John wants to talk about a race, a triathlon. I have to say, I admire those who are able to p- compete in a triathlon. I'm kind of winded walking out to the rig. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? No, not too bad at all. Patty, I, I called specifically to talk about a couple of fundraisers, but I'd like to pick up on something that uh, was in your preamble this morning and you just mentioned prior to this break, and that's the um, crisis I guess we're in right now with uh, health professionals and the ability to recruit and retain them. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of psychologists, social workers, dietitians, and there's probably others that are not coming to mind right now. But I, I, I want to point out that that problem is exasperated by the complexity of eating disorder treatment because we find even though we may find a dietitian, they don't have the skill set to treat an eating disorder patient, similarly with psychologists and social workers. While they're versed in things like depression and uh, and uh, uh, anxiety and that sort of thing. That the, there's a specific skill sets required to deal with the complexities of an eating disorder. So we're finding it, and, and not only in the public sector but certainly in the private sector as well, that, that that families are having difficulties finding the resources they need to get the treatment they needed early in the game. Well, you know, and on the world of the psychologist role in your organization and throughout the community, there is a reason why this problem is not only as massive a problem as it is, but the reason that psychologists think the way they do about their role in the mental health system, even in the towards recovery document, they're not even mentioned. So just imagine being stressed out, burnt out, knowing that there's an accreditation problem looming at Memorial University, and still not even mentioned as part of the path forward regarding mental health service in the province. There is a reason that this is all piling up to be a massive concern, and rightfully so. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm happy to say we've got got open communications with the mental health and addiction folks at uh, Health NL, and um, we're we're trying to work with them to to find solutions. But it's absolutely critical that we do find a way to to get the supports. And the area of eating disorders is one that's a, a glaring example where the skill sets are not there in the abundance that are needed to treat the number of people who are dealing with eating disorders. Fair enough, Paul. And let's get to your fundraisers as well, because yeah. that's an important part of it. Yeah, we'll do it, do it quickly here. We've got a couple coming up. Uh, we have our ongoing 50-50 sweep. The draw date is uh, for sweep number two is rapidly approaching, August the 15th. You can get tickets by emailing us at info at edfnl.ca or by calling us here in the office, 709-722-0500. If you leave a message, somebody will get back to you, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get you those, those tickets. Uh, the other one is one that um, our second bingo of the season got delayed uh, last uh, uh, two weeks ago, I guess, for unforeseen circumstances. But we are going ahead on August the 9th. It'll be at uh, Jack Byrne Regional, as usual, gates opening at 6. The bingo starts at 7. We have $2,500 plus in prize money that will be given away, plus we've got Nevada tickets, we've got 50-50 sweeps, and the food truck on site, as good as it gets is the name of the food truck that will be on site that evening. So we really want to encourage people to, to come on out and support our bingo. Our, our first one back at the end of June was a, was a great success, and if we can duplicate that or, or, or exceed it, it would be really appreciated because all the funding from any of our fundraisers 
goes directly to support individuals and families who are dealing with an eating disorder within their family units. Appreciate this, Paul. Good luck with it. Thanks very much, Patty. Have a great weekend. You too, Paul. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Paul Toomey is the ED at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Let's go to line number six. Take a to the Director of External Affairs with Munsu. That's John Harris. John, you're on the air. How's it going, Patty? Great today. Thanks. How you doing? Good, good. I'm glad to hear. So I wanted to call about this uh, recent development uh, coming out of the Munn Psychology Residency. Uh, I'm really concerned that there's two less faculty than they need to have for their accreditation with uh, the Psychology Association. So uh, what really is, you know, scary about this is that if it loses accreditation, a lot of students are not going to be having counseling. And uh, so so these counselors are the ones supervising the, the, the clinical psychology residents, the faculty members are supervising the doctor uh, candidates that are doing the, the uh, counseling that can provide diagnosis. They're operating under their license. And uh, if we lose this you know, residency by losing the accreditation, a lot less students are going to be able to get uh, care on campus. I mean, this is just one of those issues. You know, it's not going to just be at the Memorial University. What might be the implication for psychologists on staff with the uh, the school district? I guess that's just the Department of Education. People don't even realize there are actual professional psychologists on staff full time in the K to twelve system. So this is just one of the wrinkles where we, you know, sometimes we just uh, focus in on one key issue, whether it be the inability to hire staff or working at half its uh, faculty complement inside that accredited uh, program at Mon. It just extends throughout the community. Losing psychologists to the private sector. Not everyone has insurance to cover the private sector. So there's just going to be uh, comeuppance here that's going to be harmful to the whole the whole of society here if we don't figure this out. Because it looks like 11th hour and here we are striking a working group. This is not news. This is not brand new. We've been talking about this on this program for literally years. And here we are. Absolutely, Patty. Uh, what, you know, there's 36 vacancies right now of psychologists in the province, and this residency has proven that people stay. They have good retention. It's got 40% retention. They stay in the province after graduating. Uh, they're providing care to students on campus, and they stay in the province when they graduate. I think that this is a, a really a, a point that needs to be made that this university needs to have the funding in order to hire faculty. There's over 100 faculty vacancies that are has uh, been either canceled or not filled. Uh, we we are really you know struggling here with the operation of this university where budget lines for faculty are going into uh, regular operations because uh, this this university is chronically underfunded. And I think that this it speaks to the big cut that came from this government. Uh, and we need to start realizing that the things that happen at this university have, like you said, effects that reach out into this entire province. And we need to be strategic about investing in this university and using this university to, to, to uh, fund the the to uh, bring bring these kinds of things to the rest of the province, like psychologists, like doctors, like social workers. And if we're not investing in this university, then we're not going to have... That's why we have these issues like retention, uh, why, why we can't keep doctors, why we can't make new nurses and, and, and teach new uh, uh, you know, medical professionals. So I think it really comes back to how we are funding this university as well. And in order to have them have the you know faculty complement to keep this program going, 
doing. They're, they need to have the funding to do it as well. So I think that's of great concern as well, Patty. Sure, you know, expanding seats at the Registered Nurses School, expanding seats by 10 in Mons Med School, all really helpful. You know, maybe it's time to just shelve any conversation about investment in things like a law school and other issues that might be of interest to some in the leadership, but let's deal with the realities on the ground. And that's very much more inside the world of healthcare versus lawyers. Even just ask the lawyers here locally. The, the vast majority that I talk to, and I have two lawyers in the family, they're like, well, I don't think we need a law school and they're probably right. Uh, curiously, coming up right after the next break is Dr. Lisa Morris. She's, of course, reg- registered psychologist, associate professor with the Department of Psychology and also does work with your student wellness and counseling center. We'll get her perspective and the perspective, uh, perspective of a professional psychologist right after the break as well. So I look forward to that. I appreciate your time, John. Absolutely. Uh, one more thing. There's sure. going to be a protest tomorrow uh, at the Confederation Building. This is about the uh, demand for search for the landfill. Uh, it's going to be at 1 p.m. Uh, this is a landfill in, in Manitoba where two First Nations women, Morgan Harris and Mercedes Moran, uh, were uh, murdered and, and uh, are suspected to be in the landfill. And yet the, the provincial government of Manitoba refuses to, to call for a search. Uh, so that will be at 1 p.m. at the Confederation Building if you want to come show your support. Appreciate the time. Thanks, John. Thanks, Patty. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. It's John Harris, Director of External Affairs at Mon. Before we get to the break, let's pump the tires for the upcoming triathlon at Sunshine Park this Sunday. Join us on line number two is John Walsh. Morning, John. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. How you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, calling in on two things. First off, I wanted to thank everybody involved with the uh, Kids of Steel that took place on Regatta Day. It went off without a hitch. We had about 500 uh, participants and probably two or 3,000 family members along with that, and everything went smooth. And I want to thank the general public for really cooperating to make the Barring Park area safe during uh, that event for everybody involved. Yeah, and as you know, one of your running group uh, members, Lynn, my wife, participated yeah. and volunteered again this year. The funniest story, though, is when they have the pylon set up to, you know, try to give them the idea where the course is on the bikes, first thing they want to do is weave in and out of the pylons as opposed oh, to yeah. take the natural bend of the course. But anyway, good on the kids of steel. That's a cool event. It is a great community event, and we're certainly happy to organize it every year for all the kids involved, right? Good on you. Um, the main reason why I was calling in this morning was to um, – make people aware of our other event, which is the adult triathlon and associated events. And that's taking place this Sunday morning at the Rotary Sunshine Park out on Thorburn Road. So um, the event will start around 7 a.m. And so we're just asking for the general public's cooperation in being patient and being mindful of the fact that you're going to have cyclists on the section of the Outer Ring Road from uh, Torbay Road to Thorburn Road. They'll be riding in the shoulder, but still please be mindful of them. And as well on Thorburn Road from the Outer Ring Road off-ramp up to the Rotary Sunshine Park. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Bennett's Road, which is the road that goes into the two larger parking lots for the Sunshine Camp, that road will be closed to all but local traffic on Sunday morning as it is a part of our bike course and run course. So just uh, letting the general public know about those um, disruptions and, again, asking for their patience and cooperation on Sunday morning. Very quickly, what sort of distances are we doing in the swim, the bike, and the run? 
Uh, well, we the course itself is a 750-meter swim course, and so the Olympic triathlon would do two laps of that, and the sprint triathlon would do one. The bike course goes from the Sunshine Camp and does a big loop down along Portugal Cove Road to the Outer Ring, and then, as I mentioned, along the Outer Ring back to Thorburn Road, and that's about 23 kilometers, and so the sprint distance does that once, the Olympic distance does that twice, and then finally, Bennett's Road primarily is closed because that's our run course, and so the sprint distance would do a 5K run, and then the Olympic distance would again do double that, do a 10K run. Uh, Listen, good luck with it, John. I know you're a machine. And just for context, and I'm tired of even listening to those distances, the Ironman, 3.9-kilometer swim, 180 kilometers on the bike, a, a full marathon in the run, that's just inhuman. But uh, good on you, John, and congratulations with the kids at Steel, and good luck this weekend. Thanks a million, Patty. Take care. All the best, John. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, before we get to the break, I appreciate your patience, Dr. Lisa Moore, is coming up after this break. But, you know, in Fogo Island... You know, lose the bank. Now there's going to be no full-time police presence. The RCMP are pulling out. There's going to be some part-time presence and the possibility to helicopter in a uh, police officer if there's an emergency. Join us on line number one is the Mayor of Fogo. That's Andrew Shea. Good morning, Mayor Shea. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Could not be better. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Okay, so what exactly is happening? Well, uh, we were contacted uh, to have a meeting with the RCMP here on Fogo Island on uh, Monday um, July 24th. Uh, there was no consultation or anything before this. They just came out and we had we sat with a meeting and they officially informed us that uh, come September we would be uh, not having any more RCMP officers living on Fogo Island full time, but they would be traveling to the island to patrol when staffing allows. So there would be people allocated to Fogo Island, but they would be staffed in Gander. And that's a long way away from Fogo. Yes, uh, and then they also uh, uh, said when there's an emergency occurs, we'll have a helicopter or a plane to come out. Now, Patty, we've been dealing with the hospital, with that crisis that's been out with the hospital, and we've had yet to get a helicopter or a plane out here for anyone to take away emergencies, and we had some bad emergencies, and it, it hasn't occurred yet. So I can't see us have an emergency in the middle of the night and the police on a plane coming out to Fogo. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And, you know, and the population base is on a per capita issue. We have more vacancies inside the ranks of the RCMP than any other province in the country, which is a problem, which I suppose is a direct contributing factor to what's happening in your community. Yes, uh, that's the reason they're giving. But, uh, but you know, Patty, uh, you know, like uh, I imagine there's shortages everywhere. But, but to do this without consultation or without anything, you know, just like happened with the doctors. I heard it on coming out Gander Bay Road, you know, that uh, doctors were leaving. But, you know, we, we just can't accept this. You know, this is not good enough. We're, we're an island that's doing really well economically. We're, we're bustling, uh, you know, and we keep getting those things happening to us. You know, you're losing your hospital, you're losing your bank, you're losing your RCMP. So, you know, like to keep things going, we need all of this. You of know, course. But that asks the big question, though, doesn't it, Mayor Shea, is, you know, your community is doing well, has economies of scale and big investment dollars on it, and the co-op and the Shorefast Foundation up and down the line. If you guys can't keep a bank and you guys can't keep a full-time police presence and other amenities, it just really must scream volumes to other leadership in other smaller communities that don't have the upside, economically or otherwise, that your community has. So that's a, I know that's 100,000 feet above sea level question, but it's a big one. It's exactly, you know, like, 
like, you know, we're doing everything we can, you know, and, and the money is coming in. We got fish plans going great year. Uh, you know, we're bringing in workers. There's, there's more jobs than we have people. Our population doubles or triples in the summertime with people living here at homes and, and the amount of tourists. And, you know, all of this affects this. It, it just doesn't affect us. It affects everyone. But, you know, like, what does it do to our fire brigade when we have an accident in the middle of the night? And they show up and there's a bad accident on the highway. You don't have police to call. So they got to take care of this to put more responsibility on our volunteers. It's a, it's not just uh, so easy as saying, oh, we'll do this, you know. And and we lost our bank, you know. Uh, we're supposed to go to Gander. Now we're supposed to go to Gander for our policing. But we're not like any other place because it takes, you know, if, if you're going to do a patrol here, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get up in the morning, seven o'clock, come out here and go around Fogo Island and leave again. How often are you going to come back? We're going to get no patrols, and they say this is part time. I don't believe that because once this is set up and he gets it going for a while, then it'll be permanent. So this is our main problem. We think this is going to be permanent, and we're not going to accept it. We're definitely opposed to it. Uh, we were never consulted on it. It was just thrown at us again, and we've contacted Minister Hogan. He's working on it with us. And we contacted our MP, we've contacted everyone, and we're having a, a demonstration on uh, August the 10th at 6.30 at the RCMP station. We're asking all Fogo Islanders to show up. we got petitions put out. And anyone who comes to the uh, to the demonstration on Thursday night, if they have a, a little speech they want to make about how this is going to, going to affect them, please feel free to come along and, and make your little have your little say because Patty, we can't let this keep happening to outport communities you know like we're just getting hit all the time and, and everybody's talking about economic development sure and I mean, we all know the facts of the matter here when the cat's away the mice will play people will take advantage of this yeah. it's the unfortunate reality that we have to acknowledge inside this consultation or otherwise we know what that means so I mean Patty, just like, let's go ahead. go ahead we're like every other community we got people who have drug problems and things like that what happens 3 o'clock in the morning if someone shows up at the, at the hospital and want to get in because they're having a hard time and you got two nurses on? What do you do? Phone gander. You know, what do you do? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? You know, this is the kind of thing we're worried about. We got we got situations here, you know, and, 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 and big populations coming in the summer, a lot of tourists. Maybe tourists won't be so comfortable here if there's no police force. I don't know. And I mean, it's, nope. and it's fundamental things too. There's a community on the west coast. I can't remember which one, so I'll leave it out. It's you know, someone might just die of natural causes in the backyard, and you can't do anything until the RCMP come and release the body. So it's just little things. It's not all about maybe drugs and crime and those big picture, very troublesome items. It has real life implications for the so-called innocuous, the not criminal, but in police-involved matters. So there's a lot to this. Uh, exactly. I appreciate the time. Before I let you go, what is what do you mean by saying we're not going to put up with it? Meaning what? What well, are you going to do? We're, we're not going to leave any stone unturned to, uh, you know, to uh, solve this problem, to reverse this decision. And uh, like I said, we've already contacted the minister. We're going to have a demonstration. And we'll find out from the demonstration and what the people of Fogo Island want and whatever is needed to be done, we're going to do. Because, we, we, you know, we worked on our hospital, Patty. We got our hospital probably fixed by Christmas. We'll be back to normal. We're working on the bank. We could hear in a few days that the credit union is coming. And now we got this thrown at us. You know, like uh, it's taken so much of the council's time, and we have a good council, and we're working at it continuously. And, you know, like this is a prosperous island. We want to be keep being prosperous. We want to contribute to the rest of Newfoundland, you know. And uh, But it's getting harder to do if they're going to take everything away from you, you know. Keep us in the loop, Mayor Shea. 
Yep, I'll be talking to you again, I'm sure, in the near future. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Spoko Mayor Andrew Shea. Okay, appreciate the patience of our caller coming up in the queue. She's a registered psychologist and associate professor at Memorial University in the Department of Psychology. Dr. Lisa Moore is right after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Dr. Lisa Morris, a registered psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Memorial University. Good morning, Dr. Morris. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do that. I appreciate your patience. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, there's the talk of the pending reaccreditation process that's going to happen at some point in the future at Memorial University. When is that? That will be at the end of August. I think we're slated for our uh, site visitors on uh, August 23rd and 24th. The program has been accredited by the Canadian Psychological Association since 2003. If we're already operating, see, just at the Student Wellness Centre with half the faculty complement, is it the 11th hour or has the time passed where we can do anything to deal with the pending accreditation? It's the 11th hour. Uh, I've certainly been clear with administration that, um, you know, accreditors, uh, accrediting bodies are not looking to discontinue programs. They're looking to ensure that they continue uh, at a high level of quality and standards. So my experience with accreditors and having gone through this process a number of times uh, is that accrediting bodies are looking to uh, support programs and institutions to ensure that they can work at that level. So, uh, but what they do need to see is a firm commitment. They don't need to see, you know, promises to look into things, uh, that there will be more support coming down the line. We need to offer them concrete, uh, really proof at this point uh, that there's an investment being made in sustainable uh, supports and resources for this residency program. So we need to see a firm commitment for hires, and that hiring process needs to have begun. If there's been a refusal, I'll put it, to hire since 2019, even just another couple of staffers, will the independent eye, even if there's a 11th hour move, to post these jobs and to make these hires, I would imagine the thought would be, well, if it took this type of timeline pressure to move and to act on it, what's to say it won't happen in the future? And accreditation is not something that's thrown around carefree or recklessly. So even some moves at this hour, how do you think that'll be translated or absorbed by folks who come in with an independent eye? Well, absolutely. I can't. Uh, I can't be sure. I can't read the minds of. Uh, I, I understand. Uh, but on the other hand, I think they'll also see uh, that the folks that we do have on the ground, we've stuck in there. <laughs> we've continued and continue to fight and advocate because we we don't think we know what the value of the program is. We understand the value for Memorial. We understand the value for Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, so I think they're also going to see a tremendous level of commitment there. Uh, the advantage of having a faculty unit and a faculty model within student wellness and counseling is the stability that's offered by saying we're willing now to invest in long-term uh, support for it. Uh, you know, having a faculty model and not trying to do that on short-term contracts 
I think would speak volumes to CPA. Well, the faculty model you would think would be very attractive. Uh, help us understand some of the concerns for not just simply accreditation, but the number of psychologists required to supervise graduates. You know, we know how it works when graduates from the Mons Med School will go away to get their final couple of years of tutelage and supervision to become a GP, for instance. How does it work inside the world of psychology? It's quite similar uh, to the medicine system. So we have uh, similarly an, an international match. So like physicians, all of our residents are matched on one day in February. Uh, and we participate in that as an accredited site. Uh, and you know, it's an opportunity to have that year long, final, extremely intensive uh, training experience where these are folks who are already finished. They're already coming in with you know, a thousand plus clinical hours. Um, they've already done their doctoral studies, but they're coming in that we're the final gatekeepers to ensure that they're leaving practice ready uh, for the system that they're moving into at the absolute highest uh, highest standard. So we're ensuring that they're at their top competency, uh, being able to move into those positions. So just like in medicine, uh, it's extremely important. And we take that responsibility very seriously to ensure when they walk out the door, they're ready to move in and, and practice uh, and give the best possible care uh, and psychological services uh, to the public. With 36 vacancies, what's the reality? Is that we'll have to decrease the number of seats in the program itself, or do we even have enough psychologists to deal with the graduates coming out? Because 40% is a reasonable retention rate, but how many mm -hmm. folks are going to feel forced, like one uh, lady quoted in the story, going to Montreal? So do we even have enough psychologists to perform supervision for the graduates that are pending? Mm. Well, I mean, we, we are outside of the, the Eastern Health System, so I think those 30, 36 vacancies are uh, within the regional health authorities. Right. Uh, and although we, we produce the psychologists that go into that system, uh, you know, we are our own, our own program, right, within Memorial. Uh, it, it's a certainly, it's a related issue for sure, uh, because first you have to ensure that you're keeping the continual flow. So I would imagine rather than focusing solely on creating brand new pathways that so you have to start from scratch and from the ground up. Um, the smart move, you know, the best return on investment is to ensure you don't lose the extremely successful programs you already have. Obviously. So, you know, I think there's been a bit of a skew in the general public and maybe even in my mind over the years about recruiting and retention and which comes or should come first and be prioritized. You know, with Vet Coffee, the registered nurses union saying it's retention, retention, retention. And that sounds right now that I hear further fleshed out by folks like Miss Coffee. So with a net mm -hmm. increase higher of three. Mm -hmm. And it looks like the temporary uh, market adjustment or the stipend of $15,000, the 50000 for Newfoundland Labrador born and trained healthcare pros, twenty five for the nons, it just screams that it's not simply money for everybody. For some, there's just many more complicating issues. Help us understand what you hear from your colleagues. Because for some, it'll be, look, pay me and I'll do it. I'll be burnt out. I'll work my uh, fingers to the bone. But for others, it's not that or that at all. So what are you hearing? We don't have the, the luxury of being able to uh, work in that way. The type of work that we do, Patty, and I know you're very aware of this, um, you know, we're, we know we're doing sensitive work with vulnerable people. Uh, you know, we have to ensure that we're able to, to operate and provide care at the top of our game. What I will say is this is what it looks like to be a registered psychologist in any of our public systems right now in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's constant advocacy for basic, re basic uh, recognition 
again, basically, of, you know, the importance of your profession. Uh, and I don't know another health profession uh, that requires 11 to 12 years of university study uh, and has to fight this hard to have the value of its contribution accepted. So absolutely, it's certainly not a matter of just money. Uh, you know, I'm an example of the folks who have stuck with these public systems. Uh, and, you know, the, the main reason is being devalued. So feeling that psychology is not valued, uh, that folks are not able to work up to the full uh, scope of their competence, uh, and, you know, to be uh, continually the information that they're providing, the really essential feedback uh, that needs to be accepted to fix these issues is ignored. And, and that's what it really is to be a psychologist in our systems right now, constant advocacy and feeling like you don't make any ground. Even if just on a personal note or conversations with your colleagues, when you read the Towards Recovery report and you don't see your discipline mentioned specifically or at all, what does that mean for the, you know, whether it be respect or autonomy or money or your role in the mental health system? I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, again, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find another uh, profession uh, where you know the, the name of the profession is essentially scrubbed from these things. To be able to read entire reports on the you know important issue of mental health care uh, and not see psychologists listed anywhere. To know that our community ad uh, activists have hit, I think it was 139 weeks this past Monday, uh, protesting against the lack of long-term mental health care. Clinical psychologists are, of course, integral to a system like that. So we have a system that's built up a lot on the front end of things uh, around mental health, uh, you know, supports and wellness. And that's a very important piece. But also extremely important is the second half of that continuum. Uh, and that's the part that uh, I think, you know, members of the public and mental health professionals uh, are feeling both extremely frustrated uh, that this component of the, the system is really being quite neglected. Sometimes it's hard to read into the numbers, like more doctors in the province than ever, but we don't know who has a full complement of a patient roster or doing pure research. Same thing with nurses. We don't know exactly who they are, where they are, what kind of work they're doing necessarily. How about in psychology? So... We talk about vacancies, we talk about accreditation, what have you, but are there different focus areas, whether it be for behavioral psychologists working in the education system, clinical psychologists? Do we know if there's one area or another that's feeling a strain different or more severe than other uh, specialty disciplines inside psychology? I think it's fair to say that all of the areas are feeling a strain right now. There certainly are, as, as mental health specialists, um, you know, different areas that uh, people focus on, but they all really do come together. They're all required in order to have a robust uh, mental health system that's actually uh, capturing all of the needs. Uh, of our public, uh, so I think right now they're they're all in a in a difficult uh, place. But you're right that we need to be looking at uh, the bigger picture. You know, I hear 36 vacancies, and uh, what comes to mind for me is okay. That's that's one piece of it. But also, if all of those vacancies were filled, when was the last time that we went back and looked at what's an actually adequate number of positions? And I'm not sure that even a full complement uh, at this point actually reflects 
the real needs for psychological services uh, within the province. If some years back we were talking about one in five Canadians with mental health concerns or mental illness, now they're openly using one in four. It's just changing, and we haven't gotten out in front of it and consequently chasing our tail and trying to backfill 36 vacancies, what that means for mentorship and supervision and an accredited program and services. It's just enormous. Uh, Final thoughts to you, Dr. Morris, before we say goodbye. Yeah, uh, I guess one final thing I wanted to note is regarding our situation with the residency at Mon. Uh, I was a little surprised to hear a call for uh, an external uh, review. We've actually had three consultants brought in since 2020 uh, by the Dean of Students, and three formal reports were generated, uh, all of which supported our counseling faculty and, and recognized the importance of the residency program. I'd also note that uh, student services in our, our little piece of the world uh, are absolutely going to be impacted if we lose this residency program. Uh, these residents see hundreds of memorial students a year. Uh, they do thousand, uh, thousands of appointments that are booked with them. Uh, so, you know, here's, a, I guess, a concrete example of that much bigger issue uh, that we look at. In this case, you know, we've offered a very clear uh, resolution here. Like, there is actually, we, had, we can't figure this out. There is a way forward that uh, we can, you know, prevent this. Uh, so, in this case, I'm really hoping that this little window of time will be uh, taken and uh, you know there will be steps taken to uh, show us in a very concrete way uh, that you know this university uh, is committed to mental health services treatment services for its students and I hope that will be reflected by the province uh, moving forward as well let's let's take some time to listen uh, to the professionals who are on the ground uh, and doing this work uh, and actually act on the things that we're telling you are our core and vital uh, components to uh, actually developing a healthy system. Appreciate your time this morning, Dr. Morris. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Dr. Lisa Morris, registered psychologist and associate professor at the Department of Psychology. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time left to speak with you. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin our final hour of the morning and the week on line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at the NL Queer Research Initiative. That's Sarah Worthman. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's it going? Doing fine this morning. How about you? Pretty good, pretty good. Sunshine and it's not too warm, so can't complain too yeah, much. Yeah, kind of ideal temperatures for me. Anything hotter than this is a bit much for my ruddy Irish skin, but there you go. <laughs> okay, working on a new initiative for a community library. What are you doing? Yeah, so uh, I'm happy to call in to open line this morning. I know a lot of people call in with complaints, but we've got good news. Great. <laughs> so uh, we've been working on a community library project uh, with Quadrangle. Uh, and it's officially launching tonight at 6 o'clock. And so it's essentially uh, a library uh, for the 2S LGBTQIA plus community uh, and allies. So anyone really in the St. John's metro area who wants uh, to learn more about the community or even wants to access kind of inclusive uh, children's books and things like that, uh, it's free to come on in. So, you know, for what, I don't know how to ask this, 
what's the ultimate goal here? Because information is key, recognizing history and uh, different uh, historical figures in your community, their contributions, their story. So what's the ultimate goal here? Because it would seem to some, I would just guess, and I don't like doing this, but I will. It seems that might be of interest certainly to members of the community, but maybe not so much to folks outside the community. So what's your hope and your goal, the intention? Well, really, the goal is to spread awareness. I mean, you know, it's it, there's been this rise in, in hate uh, across Canada that, you know, has been really sp- spoken about recently. Um, and, and I think that the biggest way to combat that is to actually know more about it, right? So uh, there's tons of books in the archive about, um, in the library, sorry, about uh, how to be a better uh, ally, uh, how to, you know, there's even books that are not necessarily outright uh, to us LGBTQIA+, but they're written by by authors. Uh, and so, yeah, while, you know, our main goal is, of course, to service the community, uh, it's really just making these resources available for whoever wants to, to learn. Uh, for example, Goodnight Moon. We have Goodnight Moon in our collection, and that was actually written by uh, a queer woman. Uh, and it was written just after she had kind of this horrible, I mean, she was in a pretty dark place, but it was written after she had a pretty... Uh, tough breakup with with another woman uh and so that another example is like we have frog and toad in the library uh and uh we have like Gemma hickey's book and and different things like that so yeah i think uh knowledge is for everyone and i think you know part of being a really good ally to any marginalized community is learning uh and and asking those questions and we wanted to provide people a place where they can start and very low barrier completely free all you have to do is come on in look at the books uh, and we'll we'll help check it out for you for uh yeah for no cost all you need is an email or a phone number fair enough and you know as they say in compiling history history is written by the dominant forces and factors history is written by the victors how much is out there in documented uh materials that you're able to compile because I imagine there's a lot more digging and looking for stories and sharing of documents rather than the classic way where people document their history and the libraries are full of it but it's basically told by the folks who are the dominant segment of society and or the victors so where does the material come from? Yeah, absolutely. So we're not just focusing on history with the library. We've got all kinds of different genres, um, everything from, you know, nonfiction uh, to, you know, uh, mystery novels and, 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 and in between. Uh, and there's actually, once you start to look, a surprising amount of, uh, of resources out there. Uh, and, you know, I only knew when we started compiling these books, I only found out about, like, Frog and Toad, for example, uh, we have as well like Walt Whitman, who's a famous poet, uh, or even uh, the the famous kind of vampire horror uh, classical novel called Camilla. Uh, and so, you know, all of these are part of our history, but also part of our presence. And yeah, it's it's just really cool to kind of acknowledge these books uh, as part of it. I guess if that makes it does make sense. How does this, whether it be the quadrangle space or this community library, how do you hope it's utilized to 
deal with or to address or push back, whatever the right phrase is, about what is a growing sentiment of vitriol and really highly charged uh, hyperbole and rhetoric aimed at your your community? Because, I mean, like most examples, when you have smaller numbers and you're in a vulnerable community on a variety of fronts, how do you hope that this approach, this space and this library will deal with what is becoming a very loud and I would suggest a pretty dangerous uh, voice or commentary or segment of society that is really forceful on this front? Well, you know, it's a lot harder to hate someone that you don't know. Uh, You know, and I think that's why our community has so frequently been targeted because it's relatively unknown. Uh, But if you start to learn and you start to see people uh, and you start to engage with your neighbors, uh, you know, slowly that hate starts to kind of unfold. And it also, you know, will help counter these narratives that are being spread about kind of inclusive children's books and how they're, quote, inappropriate. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the books we have is called Love Makes a Family. And, and it's just talking about all the different kinds of families, right? Like whether you have one parent, two moms, two dads, a mom and a dad. And it's just showcasing all the different ways that that families exist. Uh, and so, you know, by making that easily accessible to folks, we are kind of challenging this idea and this kind of mythology that surrounds these type of inclusive books. Uh, because people can just go and, and pick it up and see, oh, you know, there's nothing explicit in these. <laughs> uh, and, of course, we have, like, measures, like, we have specifically an 18-plus section, and we're going to mark on uh, people's library cards if they are over 18, uh, and then they can access these type of kind of um, sex ed materials and things like that. And so, you know, there's, there's measures being taken, uh, and I think – what I want to just encourage everyone, not just our community, is to come on out and come and learn and, uh, you know, check out some books. Give the folks the details of where and when to come out and check out the material and meet some of the members of the community. Absolutely. Yeah. So tonight uh, is kind of our, our soft launch opening. We open at six o'clock uh, uh, from six to nine. Uh, and then our regular hours going forward are going to be Tuesdays uh, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Fridays from six to nine, uh, and then weekends, uh, so Saturday and Sunday from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, and this is going to be a, because uh, I, as I mentioned, this is a partnership with Quadrangle. Uh, and so it's going to be at the Quadrangle Community Center, which is 330 Elizabeth Avenue uh, in St. John's. And then if folks have any kind of questions or are curious about the material, uh, they can send us an email at octagonlibrarynl at gmail.com. I appreciate the time this morning, Sarah. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Sarah Worthman is the executive executive director of the NL Queer Research Initiative. Bit tongue-tied come this hour of the week. All right, let's keep rolling here. So from August 1st to the 7th is World Breastfeeding Week. Generally, it used to be celebrated, or that Awareness Week took place in October. But join us on line number two is uh, Heather Gates. She's a provincial breastfeeding consultant and the chair of Baby Friendly NL. Uh, Line number two, good morning. Heather, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Always a great opportunity to, as you just said, um, typically in Newfoundland and Labrador and in Canada, we celebrate World Breastfeeding Week um, in the month of October, and we will be continuing to do so this year. Uh, actually, Health Canada 
um, identified World Breastfeeding, National Breastfeeding Week as a health promotion week this year from October 1st to 7th. But globally, uh, World Breastfeeding Week is still celebrated August 1st to 7th. And this is just a great opportunity uh, to highlight the theme this year and to still talk about it because any time of the year is a great time to discuss um, breastfeeding. When we talk about enabling breastfeeding, what does that encompass? Well, there are many ways you can one can enable breastfeeding. Specifically, this the, this year's theme uh, focuses on enabling breastfeeding, making a difference for working parents. And the focus is this year that globally uh, highlighting the fact that workplace challenges remain the most common reason for parents to never breastfeed or to stop breastfeeding earlier than recommend than the recommendation. Uh, we're unfortunate in Canada that many parents have access. Uh, to maternity leave, to adequate maternity leave. But there are many countries in the world, in fact, for only 46 countries in the world have uh, implemented uh, maternity leave policy. Okay. So it's just focusing on, sorry, it's just focusing on what employers, what the working parent, what we can do, what our responsibilities are to provide, to provide adequate facilities in the workplace to enable parents who return to work breastfeeding. I'm in no position to talk about how it works, where it works, or stigma associated with it. My boys were breastfed, as was yeah. I. But, of course, I'm not in a position to talk about how, it's, how people are made to feel, whether it be in the workplace or in the mall or at the doctor's office or what have you. What persists to this day? Because things change. People, you know, uh, elected politicians, the babies are in the House of Commons and in the legislature. And I think that's all pragmatic and positive. So what sort of eyeballing or stigmas associated with breastfeeding? Because to me, it seems like one of the most natural things any woman and their child could do. So what do we still think and see and feel? Well, Patty, you're absolutely right. And this is a great opportunity to highlight where we are or where we sit in Newfoundland and Labrador in our own province. Um, Canada has a relatively high breastfeeding initiation rate. However, in Newfoundland and Labrador, we still remain, we still have some of the lowest in the country. Now, I don't want, I don't want to be that, that to be like doomy and gloomy because we are, we've come in leaps and bounds. Our breastfeeding initiation rates in the province um, are, are still sitting at like low to mid 70s. Uh, for initiation and that is still some of the lowest in Canada but we have like I said from the 70s we've like increased in leaps and bounds we're taking small steps all the time to increase our rates and a lot of that a lot of what we come up against is the culture you've highlighted um, things like breastfeeding in public for a long time you know we, we continue to battle somewhat of a, a breast a culture that doesn't uh, enable breastfeeding so to speak but I'm happy to say that through my work with the Baby Friendly Council and supporting um, health authority, the health authority and facil- birthing facilities in the health authority, um, we, are, we are making great improvements. For example, um, all, many facilities right now are on a journey to um, jumping onto baby-friendly, implementing the baby-friendly initiative. And some of the, the baby-friendly initiative highlights best practice and promotes breast best practice, I said breast practice, sorry, <laughs> best practice in infant maternal health, which is very important. And breastfeeding is a part of that, but also for families who choose not to breastfeed. It's, it enables us to support uh, those individuals in the way they need to be supported. 
you know, that's exactly where I wanted to go because for some women it's a an actual physical issue, for mm-hmm. others it might be a logistical issue and they might turn to uh, pumping milk and what have you. But for the segment of society not breastfeeding, you know there might be stigma associated with a woman who's uh, wanting and willing and does breastfeed, say for instance at the Avalon Mall. But for women who are not breastfeeding for whatever reason, it's important yeah. to have that part of the conversation because we can't condemn folks for their personal choice. They're not purposely trying to hurt their child. They're not purposely trying to dodge uh, public stigma so how do we have that conversation because you know pitting one set against the other and not just in the world of breastfeeding has been counterproductive to say the very least so how do we incorporate that those women in this conversation it all boils down to patty um, education because a lot of, for example in the way we present this information bfi just highlighted the baby friendly initiative for example bfi we talk about bfi in that the hopes that through it, it through its implementation we will increase breastfeeding rates some people still get confused and think the b means breastfeeding uh, but it doesn't it's baby friendly the baby friendly initiative the tenets of baby friendly support all families we're very inclusive it's a very inclusive global um, global campaign created by WHO and UNICEF that we are implementing right here in our very own province. We're taking steps every day in our birthing facilities, supposing it's skin to skin, holding your baby to skin to skin, keeping your baby close to you. Uh, one time we couldn't do those things and it supports all families. So, you know, through that, and, and you are absolutely right, there is no person or individual parent that should feel bad for their choices. It's all about something we call informed choice, being able to present uh, the public, the families, before they even have the baby, uh, to inform them fully so that they're able to make what we call an informed decision. And once they're able to make an informed decision, we support that. Uh, Last one before we let you go. And again, these are tricky questions for the man to ask, but here we go. So (laughs) there's no distinct cutoff time or age for which breastfeeding is no longer appropriate. So again, for some women, whether it be they just become so attached to the process and they think it's so beneficial uh, physically for their child or it's an emotional attachment, I do see and hear people, especially when my my children were very young, we go to these groups with our friends who are in very similar life circumstance, and you'd hear the, the little rumbles or the behind the back sniping about one child seemingly too old to breastfeed. How do we approach that kind conversation because you know there's quite a difference between your infant and your toddler versus a much older child so how should we approach that conversation again i don't know if that's an appropriate question but i asked yeah, it anyway totally there's no yet yeah, totally appropriate question patty health canada actually remand, actually recommends exclusive breastfeeding uh, up to six months with the appropriate introduction of complementary foods and continue breastfeeding up to two years and beyond so and and beyond is the key point there there's so much more to breastfeeding than just nutrition patty and i think that's what a lot of people don't understand uh whether it be attachment whether it be security um there's breast breast milk itself no matter how um it's the person an individual chooses to feed their baby be it directly at breast or via pumping and bottle um there is a benefit it's always changing we call breast milk the living fluid it's like the i I kind of joke in my circles that it's kind of like the insect kingdom you know we're always finding uh new insects in the world it's kind of like breast milk we're always finding new and exciting things about breast milk be it stem cells be it dna um 
you know, all these types of things, immunity, uh, it's, it's, there's no limit to, to its benefits. So, you know, the longer we can breastfeed, and again, it goes right back to culture. Um, we are not familiar, we're not as a culture in Newfoundland and Labrador familiar with seeing extended breastfeeding in circles. You're not, you're not used to seeing uh, readily like a, an individual breastfeeding a toddler on her lap, a three-year-old on her lap at the Avalon Mall, for example. But the whole basis of enabling breastfeeding and going right, circling right back around to uh, the theme, enabling breastfeeding, <clears throat> is what can we do in our whose responsibility is it uh, to enable breastfeeding to allow uh, parents to feed their babies and for babies to receive breast milk it's everyone's responsibility it's your municipality it's your government it's your business it's our families it's our in-laws it's our health care providers there's so many roles that um, many people can take to wrap their wrap the, the family the breastfeeding family in a what we call what I like to call in um, in our work, a warm chain, a warm chain of support, and that continues right from pre, pre, um, oh my gosh, pre-pregnancy, right through to the pregnancy when the baby is born in hospital, and then heading out into the community. You know, you want to be able to go, you know, to the Avalon Mall or sit in at the playground or go to church or, you know, uh, go to playgroup and not be, you know, feel like this is an odd thing you know that's our that's a human right breastfeeding is a human right for the parent and also for the child to receive it uh, i really appreciate you making time a uh, happy world breastfeeding week to you give, yeah. give folks some contact information if they'd like to connect with you as the breastfeeding sure. consultant yep so again we're all over social media uh facebook twitter uh sorry x formerly known as twitter <laughs> um instagram we have a website anyone you can reach us through there um stay tuned for october because again always ready to talk about uh breastfeeding um in august but we will be celebrating canada for national breastfeeding week with the same theme and ideas around that theme in october so october 1st to 7th so who knows patty maybe i'll hop on again and talk to you again i look forward to it thanks for the time this awesome. morning heather Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Heather Gates, Provincial Breastfeeding Consultant, Baby Friendly Council of Newfoundland and Labrador's Chair. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Heard us check in with Shaking on Twitter. Wherever you see him open line, you know what to do. Or X, as it's called. It was strange stuff, man. Uh, email address is openlineofeosim.com. When we come back, hopefully we'll reconnect with Janet with a better connection and then an opportunity to speak with you on a topic of your choosing to wrap up the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's join Janet on line number 10. Janet, you're on the air. Okay, thank you, Patty. No problem. Yes, I was just expressing my concerns about that wonderful fairy we have, the veteran. Uh, she's been out of service more than she's been working since she came here. So yesterday, I was one of the ones that, that left on the wharf in farewell. And we had to wait for the change of ferry to come over to farewell and pick up the traffic for Change Isles and go to Change Isles and then come back and pick up traffic for Fogel. So we arrived in Farewell at 3 o'clock and we finally got home last night at 10. Farewell, there's no services, not even a vending machine where you can go and get a bottle of water. So I just wanted to let you know that I think the ferry is back running again today, but I'm not sure. Yeah, because during the news, I tried to find out whether or not it was, and I can't find a clarification if it's on the run or not today, to be honest with you. No, and I don't know either, but I did see the change on ferry this morning come over. Okay. 
Well, we're probably just stuck with the change of here now for the next few days. Yeah, I'm actually actively trying to figure that out, So, and I don't know what the mechanical issue would be, but it's, if I can get the information for the end of the show, I'll be happy to talk about it on air and give you and the folks in the area uh, an idea what's happening. Thank you, Patty. Happy to do it. Thanks for the call, Janet. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, there we go. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the vice chair of the Carpenter Public Library Board. That's Rebecca Parsons. Good morning, Rebecca. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. This is Rebecca. How are you doing today? Great today. How about you? Good, thanks. So I just wanted to let everybody know about our book sale that's taking place tomorrow from 10 to 4 in Carbonier. Uh, we'll be selling a huge variety of youth books from all genres, like mystery, romance, biographies, sci-fi, Newfoundland, self-help, etc., etc. We also have a great selection of kids' books. This is a great opportunity for teachers to refresh their libraries for September. We have board books, chapter books, young readers, manga, and teen novels. We also have a few used CDs, DVDs, and jigsaw puzzles. And so it's taking place at the Princess Sheila Seniors Building, which is next to Honda Town on Water Street. It's not in the library. Um, this is Carbonier, of course. Yep. And please bring your own bags. So are these CDs and DVDs and puzzles and books, are they recycling what's part of the library or are these things have been donated for sale? How does that work? These are all donations from friends, family, and, and we put out some uh, posters online uh, asking for donations. So these are all donations from, from patrons, friends, family. Um, yeah, and there's there's a really wild selection of items there. Well, that's helpful because there's something there for everybody. You know, yeah. for some people, they have a love of reading, and it happens year-round. doesn't matter if it's 35 degrees out. They love to read. And you talk about teachers repopulating their books for their classroom, what have you. Maybe a great idea, too just to get that reading back into the library activity because back before we know it, we're back to school and sometimes it takes a little bit of a while to switch your brain back onto that sort of activity versus playing tag or playing baseball or what have you incorporating a bit of reading getting back into the school swing of things is probably a very helpful idea absolutely and there's nothing finer than sitting outside and reading a book yeah, I just read a book on the flight, which I really quite enjoyed. Hard Ticket, edited by Lisa Moore. Uh, anyway, so the sale is coming up on Saturday, August the 5th from 10 to 4 at the Princess Sheila Senior, Seniors Building. That's uh, Honda Town, Water Street, Carbonair, not at the library. Lots of different genres for young and old alike. Maybe pick up a puzzle. Just out of curiosity, I don't know if you know, uh, but are puzzles as popular as they once were? Because they were all the rage when I was a kid. Everyone had a puzzle going. Well, in our family, jigsaw puzzles are a big deal. Um, okay. I know my dad's doing puzzles probably every week, so <laughs> we love them. And I think during the pandemic, they really had a, had a popularity burst. Um, lots of people doing puzzles at home. So, yeah, there's, a, there's a, quite a few puzzles that my dad has already done. So, <laughs> I think it's terrific. And I don't want to put you on the spot about library funding, but it's a big deal. The funding hasn't changed in a long, long time. Libraries and library boards are having a hard time replenishing their stock. You know, there has been a real explosion in digital lending, which comes with a, uh, a, time, a time frame where they have to reissue licenses and what have you. Any thoughts on library funding? Because it is a problem. Yeah, so we've been discussing it a lot amongst our board um, about the funding issues and how there's no additional funding for books and things like that. So it is a real concern. Um, and that's what makes fundraising, like what we're doing with the book sale, so important uh, for our library. Um, so there's a lot of extra work. And, and you know, just like the news uh, just mentioned just then, 
libraries are not just books. They're a real hub of the community for a lot of uh, small rural communities as well. So they're very important. And it's really sad to see um, the funding not being continued or not being increased to um, allow for uh, cost of living adjustments and things like that. So, um, you know, it's something we're fighting for. And, and uh, you know, we've been you know, sending letters to government and um, different officials to try to push for more funding in the budget. Um, we'll wait to see what we hear. <laughs> we haven't heard anything yet, but we're we're still working on, at least for the Carbon Air Public Library Board, we're trying our best to try to get more funding. Yeah, and I mean, when people hear, well, spend, 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 more, 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 it's about priority. It's not about additional monies in the budget. It's about how we prioritize where money gets spent. That's the mm-hmm. real be-all and end-all when it comes to budget line items. So I'm not saying let's spend a hundred million to $100 billion a year. Let's just fine-tune where we spend, prioritize stuff. If we're talking about literacy or literacy concerns and a hub that a library would be, especially in smaller towns, it's a bigger conversation than simply being able to check out an Agatha Christie. Okay, so Saturday, August 5th, 10 to 4, Princess Sheila Seniors Building, uh, next to Honda Town, Water Street, and Carbonier. It's not at the library. Good luck with the sale, Rebecca. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day now. Same to you. Take care. Thanks. Right. Bye-bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. Rebecca Parsons is Vice Chair of the Carboner Public Library Board. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I was listening to your show. I always got your show playing uh, lightly in the background here in the office. And I heard the two words that are near and dear to my heart, which is paradise in, uh, in high school. So uh, I, uh, I said, I'd, you open the door, I'll call, call in. And uh, I did hear the mayor afterwards, actually, on your, on your show. And it's, uh, it was really great to hear that the, the mayor and councillor are on side with this and uh, recognizing the need uh, of a school. I know earlier in the year I met with the council and I was a little disappointed at that time because uh, the response seemed to be, uh, you know, it's a provincial issue, call your MHA. But, uh, no, very happy to hear that there's another uh, load of voices to this cause. And as you know, I've, uh, I've pushed this issue for, for a long time and I'll continue to do so. But at, the problem I have here is every time we come around to the start of the school year, it seems to uh, become a, you know, a little bit more to the forefront. And uh, unfortunately, this issue uh, of a high school in paradise is something we need to be pushing 24-7 all year long. Uh, I've met with many groups. I've met with Tony Stack, Terry Hall, school district, and all of them. And, and everything, everything I look at, all the stats I've had, have point towards a high school in paradise and it's been on their agenda it's been on the agenda of the english school district uh, their capital works projects going you know back to 2015 and uh, the school was on the list and it's still on the list and it's probably top of the list now and look this is not nothing against portugal cove st phillips for getting their high school wonderful but if the logic that was used to get the high school down there is what, what was used, then that applies tenfold to a school in paradise. There is absolutely no logical reason why we do not have a high school in paradise for, for the parents and children in the area. And the effects of a, a school in paradise is going to be positive, not just for paradise, but for CBS, for Holy Spirit, and for Mount Pearl, from Mount Pearl uh, Senior High. Uh, we know CBS and uh, Paradise are growing. Uh, the schools, high schools in those areas are, are busting at the seams. We have multiple uh, primary schools feeding into a smaller number of intermediate schools feeding into two high schools. So the logic is there. I, uh, uh, 
and I'm going to continue to push this issue for uh, for high school in paradise. And I've talked to many parents, and many parents, uh, you know, they can call me on this because uh, they're talking about setting up an advocacy group on this, and it's unfortunate we have to go that route, you know, for something that is so logically needed. Uh, you know, pushing forward on this is something that we need to do. It's just it's just unfortunate that we continue to wait for something that was on the agenda back in 2015 that was deferred indefinitely by, by the Liberal government now, and it's still deferred, you know, ten, uh, eight, ten years later, we're still waiting, and there's no word on whether it's going to happen or not. And, you know, I did corner I did corner the infrastructure minister, John Abbott, down. Well, I didn't corner him, but we had a chat down at the regatta the other day. So um, uh, I gave him the heads up. I'll be reaching out to talk to him about the high school and I'll also be reaching out to the new minister of education and continue to do so. But it makes no sense to me that uh, we have a... Uh, a growing population, so many young kids and families in the area, and uh, no talk about a high school. Makes no sense. Well, I mean, people will say, well, Paul Din and Dan Bobbitt are just fighting for their own political photo opportunity. No, the data is clear. If there's 1,500 students in paradise being bussed out come this September, when compared to Portugal Cove St. Philip's, which I have a soft spot in my heart yeah. for, because that's a community that I have family relations to. So this is about data. This is yeah. about prioritizing things that belong at the top of the heap. Just don't take it from me. Don't take it from Paul Din or Dan Bobbitt. Take it from Tony Stack. The new school was not one of the three priorities we identified, nor has there ever been an infrastructure request for a high school in Portugal Cove St. Phillips, and yet Paradise has been at the top of the board, not so much anymore. Just for context for folks listening, budget 2023, $127 million for new schools. Portugal Cove St. Phillips, one here in Kenmount Terrace that I can see out my window here, redeveloped the school in Pillies Island, and of course a long uh, anticipated school in Cartwright. So, we're still looking for the numbers, we've asked the Minister for, and uh, they're not forthcoming, and that kind of screams volumes to me, but I'll do the follow-up. But you know you're right there, and and, and uh, yes, you know if I'm in this position, people people think it's a politically driven thing. But I can guarantee you, from the day I was elected to Paradise Council back in 2020, uh, 2013, I brought this issue up, and I've been pushing it ever since. And uh, you know, I have to I have to do what my residents are asking for, what my constituents are asking for. And top of mind for them is a high school. The other things are, are Route 60 through to, through Topsail is in, in disrepair. These are the issues we got to push here. When I moved to Paradise, <laughs> my kids are in their late 20s, early 30s, we were hopeful then of a high school in Paradise. You know, and here we are. So this makes perfect sense. I've met with Tony Stack and Ter Terry Hall. They've said the same thing. This came right out of left field. Uh, you know, the school down in Portugal Field, uh, Portugal St. Phillips, but yet they have, they've shown me all their executive, I got it here in front of me, I got binders full of their meetings and, and minutes and, uh, you know, the, the statistics and everything points towards a high school in paradise. And it's on a list, and it's been on a list, and it's still sitting on a list, I would hope, uh, but, you know, it makes no sense to me why there has not been any clear answer or response on that, you know, and uh, uh, there seems to be silence on it. But, you know, the, the longer you beat this drum, hopefully uh, there'll be some, some comments made on this. You know, as I said before, I said it, it requires a full court press from everyone to try and get answers here on something that's so dearly needed. Appreciate the time, Stormy Paul. Thank Appreciate, you. Appreciate. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Right, bye, -bye. Paul Din, uh, PC member of Topsail Paradise. Who doesn't have a favorite municipal council leader? I got one. 
Coming up on line number four, right after the break, the mayor of the town of Riverhead is Mayor Sheila Lee to give us some promotion of the 20th anniversary of the Gulch Beach Festival and Car Show coming up this weekend. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, say good morning to the mayor of the town of Riverhead. That's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Isn't it a beautiful one? <laughs> this, uh, I wanted to, uh, of course, I'm a person who likes to promote our whole region, not just our community. <clears throat> and uh, I wanted to just briefly mention the wonderful Gulch Beach Festival and car show that's going on tomorrow in the in the Gulch, part of St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I'd love for people to appreciate what it's all about. I'd love to see lots of people come in and check it out. I mean, there's, there's a car show with all kinds of antique cars. There's a barbecue. There's live music. There's wheel spins and cash wheels and item stalls and Nevada tickets and fish pan and kids' activities. And there's a this beautiful hiking trail right there. There's a lovely pond that if someone wants to bring their bathing suit and their towel, they can have a dip while it's going on. Um, these people put a lot of work into this Gulch Festival and car show. It's going on now for 20 years. So I thought today, I was talking to John Gibbons this morning, and John said, Sheila, I said, John, you're having a big show tomorrow. And he suggested, he said, what about Petty Daly now? He said, do you think you could give him a call for us? <laughs> I said, of course I will. So, and then the next day on Sunday, it's the St. Mary's uh, um, uh, Cemetery Mess, and, and then the, lo- the local stores and the pub have food so people can have something to eat afterwards. Like this area now, this whole region has happened. I mean, it's been a fantastic year here. We have, we're so excited about that plant in St. Mary's and all the crab that has been processed to date. There's so much positivity floating around, all the spin-offs, all kinds of people, you know, earning money, like providing different services to that plant, whether, whether it's hauling crab back and forth or whether it's purchasing stuff at the store, like fuel, food or whatever. Uh, and people are bringing home real good checks. So we're all excited and we're all enthusiastic. And be a great, this would be a great weekend for people to come and, and explore the Gulch Beach and re- appreciate what it's really all about because it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great spot. And it actually kicks off tonight, a pre-teen dance at the Community Hall there in St. Mary's. That's right. And, you know, on top of the crab plant, which is really welcome news, of course, for the region, there is an RFP to finally haul away the old fish sauce plant in St. Mary's as well, which is good news. It's wonderful news. We just got to see now what happens when when uh, I can't get excited until I see that every last bit of that gone. So let's hope it's going to it's going to happen sooner rather than later. But we have a lot to be excited about. Uh, I think uh, this is one of the com- areas now that's going to it's going to prosper, and we're not going to have to worry about our, our communities dying. So that's very something very exciting to to, uh, to to think about, you know. And really a hop, skip, and a jump from the city and the northeast exactly. Avalon. So there's lots of opportunity for folks to get out there. I know that I sent personally a ton of folks out to St. Vincent's like I try to do every year to see the whales. But same thing with Gulch Days. And look, I try not to play favorites. And I said that to make you giggle before we went to the break. (laughs) But, you know, we try to spread the love around the province for whatever's going on. So, folks, take it the tongue-in-cheek for what it was worth. So whatever we're trying to promote, whether it be the Stephenville Film Festival, Gulch Days, or Come Home Years in Wabush, whatever it is, you bring those forward because we can be part of the community calendar. Exactly, and we have so much, so much to celebrate, so much beauty to experience, and what a day it will be with lovely weather tomorrow for people to come and enjoy this festival. Anyway, Patty, thank you for taking uh, taking a little bit of time for me to to mention this, and uh, I'm sure we'll be we'll keep in touch. 
and uh, hoping to see you out this way soon. Don't, yeah. don't, ha- don't, ha- don't have too many irons in the fire now. Yeah, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sheila. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I mean, Mayor Lee, Mayor Lee, Sheila Lee, the mayor of Portugal of Riverhead. Man, let's go to line number five. Last word of the week goes Tolson Rendell. Tolson, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you today, boy? Top shelf today. How about oh, you? Oh, man, it's a beautiful day, Patty, boy. Good to hear. I'm looking out the window here now across from the house, right out and right straight across from the lighthouse and over to the other side of Trinity Bay. It's just flat, calm. It's as flat as you can have it. Perfect. It's perfect. Now, anyhow, Patty, the reason why I call you is uh, I've got a Janeway fundraiser on the go here in the town tomorrow night at the rec center. It'll be the 36th annual. I'm going into 36 for, for the cup coming year, 24, and the Teleton itself will be number 40. So anyhow, it's tomorrow night, August 5th, 2023, at the Hertzkenet Rec Center, and it starts at 10 p.m., and it's music by Terry Pins Music. Now, I'm changing the thing that I had in May, for May 13th. I'm changing it to a free will offering this time instead of a $10 admission. So if anyone would like to come, you'll put in what you want to, at the door. So come show your support. There's a door prize, 50-50 draw plus special draws. And I noted this. Come out for a summer blast because we deserve it. Absolutely. So, Tolson, you've been at this a long time. You must be trying to intend to get all the way to 40 years yourself. Well, if I can do it, Patty, by or better still, I told old horse when that up in the barn, I'll be at it. If, when it happened to her, when she died shortly after she died, or before she died, I told her I, if, I, if she died before me, I'll keep it going as long as I can. So my prediction, if I live to be 100, I'll be at it still. Attaboy, Tolson. So give the folks the details, the where, the when, one more time before we say goodbye. It's uh, Saturday, August 5th, which is tomorrow night at the Hertzkenet Rec Center. It's 10 p.m. It starts, and the music is by Terry Pins Music, and it's a free will offering at the door. Come show your support. Special draws, 50-50 draws, door prize. Come for a summer blast. If you need info, give me a call at 1709583-2828. Before I go, Patty, I'd like to say one thing. Sure. The town of Sunnyside, I'd like to send out a big anniversary blast for them tomorrow the 165th because they were the first to get the cable and we were the second to get the first successful transatlantic cable in 1866 so we need as two towns as far as i'm concerned to work together to make this to benefit each town whatever we can do with it 100 percent tolson appreciate the time good luck right, with it you take care and all of it you too sir Bye-bye. have a good one all right, right here we go uh quick one so hair bay giant squid festival market in the park happening tomorrow august 5th from 10 to 4 at the hair bay municipal park 35 vendors a bunch of different products food available to purchase bunch of games face painting and the like so hair bay of course route 320 on the road to the shore the hair bay giant squid festival market love it done all right, I wanted to get one more in there. Da, 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 da. We spoke with Rob from Happy Kids. Had a successful year as a vendor down at the uh, the banks of Quiet Divide, Katie Vitti, and the Royal St. John's Regatta. He wants to give a shout-out to his Happy Kids crew. Jill, Kim, Jim, Paul, and Michelle, and, of course, Rob. Done again. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. All of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VO. No, we're off on Monday. We'll be back on Tuesday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Tuesday. Bye-bye.